Welcome to this week's episode of the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast. NCAA Conference Weekend is in the books, and there were a ton of top performances across the country, including the SEC meet, where five collegiate records went down, including two by the incredible Britton Wilson. At Pac-12's Washington snapped Oregon's 15-year win streak on the men's side and won all five distance events, even though their two NCAA champions combined for just two points. Clemson won the ACC men's title amid controversy. Rojo will weigh in on DQ gate and a potential Jimmy Weiner 2.0 situation. And at the pro level, we had a great World Athletics Continental Tour meet in Nairobi with big wins from Shakari Richardson, Ferdinand Omanyala, and Reynold Chariot, the budding 1500-meter star from Kenya. And we end the show with a great interview with Monica Puig, the unlikely 2016 Olympic champion in women's tennis, who is now running marathons. Last month, she ran two PRs in seven days by completing the Boston and London marathons. She'll be looking to run even faster this fall in Chicago. We talk about why she's taken up running and how the sponsorship models differ between track and field and tennis. This is Jonathan Galt. I am joined by my co-hosts, the co-founders of Let's Run.com, Robert and Weldon Johnson. It's a lovely spring morning here in the Northeast. Guys, how you doing? Never been better, John. Never been better. We had a lovely family visit. Weldon came down with his daughter, Cece. My son was so excited to have someone visit. My parents were in town. Everybody survived. My son did vomit and missed one of the days, but hey. But... That was a good family trip. And then I, I came into the office, got here, what, about 20, 30 minutes, started recording. And sitting on the desk is this package. Can you guys see this? Yeah, I see a, an illustration. There's a sticker and a speech bubble on the side of the package, Robert. Can you tell us what it says before you open it? I'm just worried this isn't some sort of assassination attempt or some crazed fan, right? Like, I just want to make sure you're you're okay when you open this package. I don't know what it's from. I have no idea. They spent $19.25 to send this. It's about, the package appears to be about the size of a shoebox. Rojo Johnson has the address. For the return address, it says pre one Bowerman, one B-Man Drive, Beaverton, Oregon, 97005. I'm wondering now if this is guerrilla marketing from Nike. Now, on the side is this individual wearing a Team USA jersey. It looks like pre, Robert, from the 1972 Olympics. A cartoon pre. This is big. Nike isn't, there's no way it's Nike because Nike has never done anything promotional with us. But open the damn box, Robert. Well, tell me what the speech bubble says. What's pre telling you, Robert? The, the priest, the, the priest says, You've got this. Oh my God. You've got this marathon, Rojo. Oh God, I'm going to have to start training. This is shoes. Let's open it up. Oh. It's an orange box. You know what that means. Size 10 and a half. That's my size. Nike Air Zoom Pegasus 39s, it says. Is that a training shoe? I guess they feel like I need to train before I actually race. 
Did Robert Johnson, the co-owner of Let'sRun.com, ask if a pair of Nike Pegasus shoes were training shoes? Wait, I know, Robert. I don't know if you caught this. There were some numbers written on the shoes. Can you tell us what those numbers say? Oh, these are amazing. These, this is the Rojo shoe. I, I told you guys I have insiders up there. This is maybe my shoe. They're going to quit. And, the shoe is red. It's got a red swoosh on it. So that's red for Rojo. And it says Rojo or Rojo on one shoe. And on the other shoe, looks like this is custom designed, not just written on with a black marker, I think. 259.59. The impossible barrier. People thought it was impossible for a human being to run 26.2 miles in under two hours. That didn't prove to be that big of a challenge. But to have me at my advanced age break three hours in the marathon with no training, apparently it's is got the Nike shoe execs excited. No, I think they're assuming you will train. I, I think the people want you to do training before you try to break three hours in the marathon, Robert. Oh. Thank you to whoever sent that. I appreciate it. I wonder if it's the same person. And despite Nike having billions of dollars, we're not being paid anything for this. Rojo is the guy to like fall for giving free stuff, free publicity out to Nike. Meanwhile, when I was in Baltimore, his wife went to an Under Armour run. Speaking of such, what do I have here, John? I feel bad for Under Armour because I've never worn a pair of racing shoes. Super shoes. This is true. I've never raced in racing shoes. Super shoes. Under Armour sent me a pair. So there, it's competing, John. This could get big. Under Armour, Nike competing for Let's Run's affection. This is the Under Armour Flow Velocity Elite. I believe that is the shoe that Sharon Locati, the prototype that she wore in to win New York City Marathon. That shoe is out. I will get it out there. That's another free plug for somebody. Now, that's disturbing to me. I live in Baltimore, Under Armour's base. They could just drop it off to my house. They must know my reputation in town. They don't even want to give me the shoes. And I apologize to the Puma guy because Puma was actually on the original Let's Run singlet. Some guy emailed us about eight months and said, hey, because I was complaining about not having shoes. He said, I'll send you some shoes. I did write him back like three months later. I don't know if he was fired or what. Never heard from him. So. All right. I'm a little worried about how this podcast has started. You guys are sounding like Gen Z influencers instead of 40-something running experts. We're supposed to have no favorites here. We're supposed to give you the cold, hard facts. No. And you guys are doing unboxing videos and that sort of thing. So. Well one more plug. It's time to cash in. Anyone want to bring me some direct sales deals? Let's talk. Email me. Weejo at letsrun.com. We got to make this thing more commercial, John. I mean, yes, I would love to have some sponsors for the podcast. I'm not complaining about that, but neither of these shoe companies are paying us at the moment. So this is just free advertising. But hey, John, we're like, it's a new wave of journalism. We should spend more time selling ads, which we don't. That's why I want people to email me if you're interested in, or just, you just got one opportunity to bring it to me. Great. Nice commission. But, but we're the future of journalism here. Citizen funded journalism. If you guys love what you do, you'll love our second podcast every more. We don't just do unboxings on that. We talk about track and field. We preview the Nairobi meet. We preview all the week in action. You want two podcasts every week. Join the supporters club today. Thank you to everyone who keeps signing up. Let's run.com slash subscribe. You can get huge savings on full price running shoes. It's a subscription that pays for itself. You sign up for a year. I think 80% of our members are full are 
year members, you get a free super soft t-shirt. Do it today. Let's run.com slash subscribe. And thank you to everyone who has already signed up. We love your support. We appreciate it very much. It's always fun bumping into you guys at meets, that sort of thing. I listened to this political podcast, John, and they're like, help us build out our studio. Should we build three giant studios since we're all in remote, remote places? I think that's a bit greedy. If we were all in the same location, it would be nice to have a cool track studio. We get singlets, spikes, and pictures, but no, you don't need to refurbish my apartment, which is where I record this every week. Uh, let's start talking about some professional track and field. The Kip Kano Classic was held over the weekend in Nairobi. Really fun meet. I enjoyed watching this one on Saturday morning. Brighton wasn't playing till Sunday, so I could just wake up and I didn't have to worry about it overlapping with one of the best soccer teams in the entire world. But this was good. The, the stands, I mean, they didn't pack the stands at this stadium because it's like 60,000 people, but there were a lot of fans of this meet. And it helps. The Kenyan government is essentially subsidizing it. They gave free entry to everyone. But trap meets are more fun when the stands are packed. There's a lot of Kenyan fans. There are a lot of Kenyan stars competing this meet. The atmosphere looked to be really nice. And they got some big wins. Ferdinando Mignola, second year in a row. He takes down a few top Americans. He wins the 100 in 984. Kenny Benderick and Marvin Bracey were second and third. He met the Kenyan president for the second year in a row. They changed presidents between last year and this year. So as a new guy, that was fun. Shakari Richardson looked amazing in winning the 200 meters during 2207, one by seven tenths of a second and was celebrating with about 30 meters to go. And then I told you guys on the Friday 15, watch out for Reynold Kipkaria Chariot in the 1500 meters. 18 years old. He took down Abel Kip saying, smart race, fast race. That was a personal best, 332.01. This guy could be a medalist this year. He's, he's that good. What stood out to you guys from this meet? Was it Shikari? Was it Chariot? Omanyala, something else. I mean, there was a fast 800. Two guys in the 143s, Emmanuel Wenyonyi beating Wycliffe Kenyamal. What do you guys like from Nairobi? John Shakiri's win was obviously very impressive. But people are getting carried away the, with themselves. Does, that doesn't mean that much. She's running really well, but she ran really well, what, a week ago? Not five days ago? It wasn't even a full week, I don't think. So I don't think we need to talk too much. People are saying, oh, she could have run so quick. She celebrated 30 meters early. No, that was like a 22 flat run in altitude, right? Well, she ran 22.07. I think she would have gone under 22 seconds. I do think in general, people overcorrect for these early celebrations. They're like, and they celebrated early. You know, half the time, these celebrations are the last couple of strides. They're still moving their legs quite quickly. But in this race, she actually did like slow down by the last couple strides. She th threw her arms out sort of like an airplane. The last few strides, like she was slowing way down. I think this is a sub 22. I saw, I mean, I don't even know if I want to dignify this. Ray's take on Twitter, supposed sprint expert, was claiming it was a 21-3, 21-4. She didn't even hit top speed in the home straight. That, that's absurd. I'm sorry. The world record's 21-3-4. There's no way in hell she was coming close to that time. But... And remember, this time's also at altitude, so she gets a bit of a bump from that. But to me, I was impressed because 
Shakari's kind of known as just a 100 meter runner. Her PB in the 200 was 22 flat, which is from a couple of years ago. But she never had like this amazing 200 where I'm like, oh wow, she's really good at this event. This run made me start to think, hey, she might actually have a future in the 200 as well. Granted, she wasn't facing the very best competition in the world, but no, this was a very good time for her and probably the best 200 meter race she's ever run, or at least the best 170 meters of a 200 she's ever run before she she shut it down. So I thought it was good. Certainly a, a, a strong result for her. She ran well in the 100 in Doha in the last Friday, but this was much better than she ran 22.54 in Botswana. So she's a half a second better. She did look great running the turn. I mean, after seeing this, I'm like, oh, she could be a 100 and 200 meter runner. But I already was saying she could win the Worlds this year in the 100 meters. Like, she's that talented. She's that good. She seems to have it together. It's great. It didn't change anything with me. John, maybe we should never have a track and field in a 60,000-seat stadium. <laughs> maybe that's one thing. Because I'd seen the screenshots. I didn't see the meet live, and I'd seen the screenshots of all these fans. And then when I actually watched highlights, I was like, wait, there's a whole backstretch where there's not a lot of people. The dudes with drums and the traditional tribal attire, I like that. The visuals from the meet. Kip saying, nice win. I'm not sure he's 18 years old, though. Do we need to go there? You mean Reynold Chariot, Cora me. Chariot. Yes, I mean, I looked at, he's, officially he was 17 when he won World Juniors last year and ran 334. And yes, uh, this is why I've been using the word officially multiple times about this. But no matter how old he is, he's one of the best 1500 guys in the world right now. But I shouldn't have gone there. Cade Flat looks old. You know what I'm saying? He's a, a big dude for for that age, very mature, so... No need to debate the age. We have a new 1,500-meter runner to watch out for. I think that's a very good thing. When I see 143s in the 800, I'm like, okay, good. This event, I don't want to be stagnant. The event sort of, we've had a manual career come through the last two years, but uh, at the World Athletics, Diamond League, Golden level, we haven't had a lot. It's been a very stagnant event, so I like seeing sort of 143s to kick things off. Yeah, and Emmanuel Wanyonyi, he's another big young talent. He's only 18 years old as well and was fourth at the Worlds last year, was the World Junior Champion in 2021. This was a personal best for him. So if he's running 143-3 second weekend of May, I'm very excited for what he can do the rest of this year. The other thing I found interesting is Carrie Richardson, sometimes she doesn't have a filter, which is really interesting as a follower of the sport because I'm sure she is not the first athlete who has prevented who's been prevented from running their preferred event at a meet because of the powers that be or something out of her control. But she is one of the first who's publicly complained about it. She was saying I was kicked out of the 100 in Botswana. I was kicked out of the 100 in Nairobi. I wanted to run the 100 in both of those meets, and I was told I couldn't. She said this both before and after the Nairobi meets, and as we discussed this on our Friday 15, what happens sometimes in these events is 
if you're a top sprint star like Shelly Ann Fraser Price, there is one appearance fee for you to run the hundred, and there is another appearance fee, a higher appearance fee, for you to run the hundred against certain athletes. So what likely happened in this race, in this meet, is that the meet organizers were willing to pay Fraser Price's appearance fee for the hundred, but perhaps not her appearance fee to race Shakari Richardson. Of course, Shelly and Fraser Price ends up withdrawing from the hundred due to injury the day before the meet. But that is my best guess as to why Richardson was in the two hundred when she wanted to be in the hundred. Yeah, the lack of filter. Generally, I like it, but it's sort of like Rojo. Occasionally, stuff exits the mouth that should not exit the mouth. So we need to have like live 100-meter rule rankings on our site. Shakira Richardson, number one in the world right now. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. She's number one because she won the Doha Diamond League? I mean, Jillian Fraser-Price is coming off the greatest. You're just digging her because she's hot right now? Okay, not rankings form measure i guess then that would just be a world list if you lined them up and raced right now who would win nothing has changed i was saying this in the friday 15 maybe i just want to piss off all of jamaica and never put out a clip out there but like come on john after seeing this one there's even less doubt if they raced right what? now shakari would take her no questions asked in the hundred chili and freezer price isn't healthy that's if they of course she would be an injured chili and freezer price but Come on, she was running 10 sixes like they were going out of style last year. I, I'm not putting Shakari Richardson, who again has never even competed at a global championship, above the greatest 100 meter runner of all time because of a few fast races in April and May. Like, if you want to hand her the hypothetical would win a 100 meter race right now against everyone because the best 100 meter runner in the world isn't healthy, sure, you can give her that gold medal, but. Let's wait until Shelly Ann Fraser-Price actually gets healthy and starts racing this year. Okay, well, you at least admit Shakari's season really couldn't be going better than it is right now? Yeah, she, she's been running great. She's in great form. This is exactly how you want things to start. Seems like on and off the track, It's from what we can tell, things are going great so far in, in May of 2023. And I hope she can keep it going the rest of the year, but... That has been an issue for her in the past. So we we will see, but it's going very well for Shakari right now. I've been very impressed by what she's done in 2023. I think it's the longest I've ever been quiet on the podcast. <clears throat> Having to host the family, I didn't watch this meet live, but I've been reading about it. I saw the 200 clip. I was very impressed by Shakari's 200, but we got to factor in the altitude is worth point. You know, I think 2201 got bronze for Dean Asher Smith. So 22 flats, pretty good. Altitude is worth about 0.18. So that's probably what her let up in most cost her. So she could definitely be a factor in the 200. But to be honest, though, no one cares about the 200. I'm not saying that winning the 200 is good, but if she wants to do both, that's fine. We'll see her more. She can build her brand. But if she's just a 100 specialist, that's fine as well. And I, and I see what Walden's saying. Like, if they race right now, if 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 if, if you lined her up right now against anyone in the world, match race, and gave me fifty percent odds to take it, I think she would 
she's the fastest human being right now. Now, some other people have run. I mean, not that many people, John. I mean, Shakira's run 10.76. Teller's run 10.78. Sherika Jackson, who she's already beaten, 10.82. Julian Alfred, Texas, 10.84. Leah Hobbs, 10.86. But not that many people run 10.76 in a year. I mean, last year, there was only three people that ran that time. Shelly Ann Fraser-Price, Sherika Jackson, Mary, you know, Jose Teller. I mean, you certainly rather be Shakira Jackson. Shakira Richardson, then Elaine Thompson Hera, who's run 60 seconds in a 400 this year in March, 23 23, losing a 200 in April. So, Shelly Ann Fraser Price hasn't raced. She's getting older. I mean, again, we'll see with Elaine Thompson Hera. This is a woman who's. Doesn't do anything except for the Olympic years, pretty much, right? I mean, she medaled last year at Worlds. Uh, she got the bronze. And yeah, it, it is very strange that she's had two incredible Olympic years and then the other season's not quite as good. But again, she's got a bigger, better track record in the big stage than Richardson. You could argue, I mean, the talent level, I would say, is very similar. If you know, They're about the same talent level, I think. But for me, the, the thing about Shakari that's what's most striking... Like, first of all, she is a crossover athlete. My Google app or somehow gave me a new, was linking me to a New York Post article about what peace looks like for controversial sprint star Shakira Richardson. So she's getting articles written about her in the New York Post. And I was reading this and there was a picture of her. I guess it's actually from Doha. She's got her fingers up. She's celebrating. And I thought, wow, the rest of the world's in trouble. She does look at peace. And I, I know she was still celebrating 30 yards from the finish. But to me, it seems more authentic and real this year. It's not like fake. It's not a false bravado. It's just, she's just taking a photo and seemed very happy to me. And I guess it wasn't that long ago when she was kicked off a plane. So that was this year. So things could change. But it kind of reminded me of the opposite of that Tori Bowie quote that her sister gave. Like, what was the quote like? The person that's always trying to act happy is oftentimes really sad. Like when you're when you're printing in front of the cameras and saying all these things, you're oftentimes got a deep insecurity. And I know she's still celebrating, but it seems less over the top or fake or I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Yeah, but I'm not going to read that much into it. Uh, I think that's enough for our weekly Shikari segment. I do want to revisit Raynal Chariot a little bit more though because we have talked to about him on the Friday 15 but let's just put in context what this guy has done this year last year 17 years old he wins sorry he wins the world junior title like four days after his 17, 18th birthday this year he's run four races he got silver in the world cross country championships under 20 race that's an 8k back in February in March, he runs 13.04 for 5K on the roads in Lille. And now he's run two 1500s this year. One was a 3.33 at altitude in Zambia to win the African Under-20 Championship. He won that by about three seconds. And now on Saturday, he beats Abel Kipsang, who's been one of the best 1500-meter runners in the world the last two years. And he runs a PR of 332.01, again at altitude in Nairobi. Just incredibly impressed by this guy. And what he did, 
in Nairobi in this race against Kip saying, I thought it was very smart. He was trying to get the lead off of him on the back straight. He couldn't get around and he backs off. He runs behind him on the turn and then attacks again in the home straight. He didn't end up running any extra distance. For an athlete who hasn't been on the scene that long, I was impressed by that move. And some people were responding. It's like, well, this is obviously what you should do. But that's not what every athlete does do. Some people will get over anxious when you're in the heat of the moment. It takes a certain degree of confidence to back off and then accelerate again, especially against someone like Kip Sang, who is hard to beat and usually brings it in these meets. So I thought this was very impressive. You know, the world championships is going to have to go. First of all, you need to make the Kenyan team, which I think you will. But the world championships, you've got to be able to run low 330s or 329 after two preliminary rounds to be on the podium. That's something, you know, it's hard to do. You've got to make sure you have that strength to be able to perform your best in the final. But what I've seen from Kip Korea, so, so from Chariot so far, Reynold Chariot, I'm very impressed by. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun in two weeks' time. We'll see him. We'll see Timothy Chariot. We'll see Cole Hawker and Kupatia all in the same 1500 at the LA Grand Prix. I think that's going to be a really fun race and a big test for the Americans, Hawker and Tia. One, if Hawker is healthy, assuming he takes the line in this race. How do they do against each other? And then how do they do against Timothy Chariot, who's been one of the best in the world the last couple of years? Well, I was watching the race while you were talking about him. I mean, I've hyped up this kid last year, but it was a pretty good, even battle between him and Kipsang. It's not like he's way better than Kipsang, but I'm more stunned by something else you said, and I guess I should have realized this. Apparently, it's easier to get a bunch of Kenyans, some of the top Kenyans in the world, to come over to L.A. and, and actually race for the U.S. fans than it is to get all thing mode to show to walk down the street. So Timothy Chariot, Abel Kipsing, Cole Hawker, Cooper Tier, all in LA next weekend. Not Abel Kipsing. Uh Reynold Chariot and Timothy Chariot and Cooper Tier and Cole Hawker. Even better because I don't I don't need Kipsing because I know how he just did. And I I want I like Kipsing's talent. I like him to rest up for the big ones. So that's exciting. That's gonna be exciting. We'll talk about that later, probably. No. I have to comment on this fifteen hundred field right now. This is amazing. When I saw just that that Timothy Chariot was going to be there, I was like, what? Like, none of the U.S. meets outside of pre get top Kenyan stars. I don't know if they don't try or what. So I don't know if Nike's behind this or what. But now Reynold Chariot as well? Cole Hawker? Cooper Tier? Thank you, Bobby Kersey or the powers that be or somebody like... I believe Mark Wetmore is the agent behind this. He's the meet director for this meet. I've never seen him get Timothy Chariot before. I'll say that much. Do you think maybe, because Nike normally forces the people to run the pre-classic, but since the pre-classic is the Diamond League final, you can't force someone to make it if they don't qualify. So maybe they, they can they get one race they can force you to come to, and you're like, hey, you're, you're coming to LA. Yeah, I don't know, but... There are some really good fields. We'll talk about this towards the end of the podcast, but I'm super pumped for this LA meet, and I, I hope people show up because with the athletes who are running, I mean, Shakari's in there in the 100. That's going to be a good race. I really hope the fans show up in at UCLA 
next weekend. Uh, w- wouldn't it be nice if Joe Biden and the American government subsidized this meet and said free entry to everyone who wants to show up? I mean, really, they should be doing everything they can to pack the house, though. Make t- tickets $10, give free... Just go to all the local high schools in LA and say, hey, show up for free with your teams. Like, you want fans in the stand for this meet. Wait, Judd, I think you're onto something. I know you said that as a joke, but we subsidize pro sports owners to the tune of billions of dollars a year or hundreds of millions. What about the Olympic sports? Seriously, it's just all done at the local level for the pro sports who don't need the money. Meanwhile, the federal government gives zero to Olympic sports. They give money for drug testing. That's it. Yeah, but this isn't the federal government that's subsidizing these local sports. This is local governments whose constituents are going to be furious if they allow those pro sports teams to leave. Like the Buffalo Bills, if the Buffalo Bills left Buffalo, the mayor would be voted out of office for letting the team go. So that's they're basically holding them under the gun. They're holding them hostage and saying, hey, if you don't pay for this, this sort of stuff, we'll leave. Track and field, it's like, hey, don't pay for this trap meet. What's the... Oh, wait, we have nothing to threaten you with. Well, the Buffalo Bills don't play in Buffalo to begin with, John. So All right, they play in Orchard sure. Park. It's very close to Buffalo, but thank you for the correction there, Robert. I, when y'all, y'all were doing... Uh, it was y'all's Jesse Williams interview, and I was listening to it, and I used to have a background in sports promotion, working in tennis and stuff. And I get it. That's why I like indoor track. A, a small venue seems large and it's packed and it's loud and, and it seems more special. But isn't some of it just like putting lipstick on a pig? Like we either have so many, you know, if you have 10,000 fans in a 50,000 stadium or 10,000 fans in a 10,000 stadium, you still have 10,000 fans. Like I know one looks a lot better, but. I guess that's why all these soccer stadiums are like 20,000 US, but I don't know. Sometimes when you give it away, people feel like it's not important to go to. But y'all were asking about the Doha thing the other day. I assume that the Doha government pays those immigrants, workers, to go to the meet or gives them free tickets or mandates that they go to the meet. And then there must have been some bus home. At Like the first bus home was like five minutes after the meet was over. So that's why they ran to the bus. Like I, y'all were shocked that all the fans left. I I didn't even notice it, but I heard y'all talking about it on the podcast. I think I had signed off earlier. I'm like, no, someone's forcing them to go for the TV optics, like we've seen in China and Moscow, etc. And then whatever. So I didn't know you guys were for the authoritarian approach. Y- y'all want? I mean, ha- we'll have Biden paying for the fans to show up. Why not just force them at gunpoint, John? That's a joke, people. I just think it's an opportunity because this meet will be, I believe it's on NBC or it is going to be televised. So people turn this on. They see there's a lot of people in LA. You've got Shakari Richardson. You've got a bunch of other athletes competing. Maybe they will say, hey, wait, are the Olympics in LA in a few years? This is a meet. This meet happens every year now. Maybe I should show up. Maybe I should get tickets next year. I don't know. Anyway, more on the LA meet later. Let's go to the conference action across the country a lot of great competitions a lot of great performances over the weekend but i want to start with the acc championships 
where we had some controversy. This is a very interesting meet. Robert wrote about it well in the week that was. Because the team scores on the men's side, five teams finished within 10 points of each other. And it could have been even closer because really the the men's 400-meter final kind of ended up determining this meet. Virginia Tech's Judson Lincoln the fourth, a freshman. He crossed the finish line first. And then he was DQ'd for taunting. He ran alongside another athlete, kind of got in his face a little bit. You know, it, it did look like taunting, no doubt. And if that result had stood, if he had been awarded those 10 points, Virginia Tech would have won. Instead, they don't get those 10 points. They finish fifth. And it ends up that Clemson, who had three scorers in this event, they go one, two, and five in the new results. They end up winning. But it, the meet was so close that if the Virginia Tech athlete had not been DQ'd, they would have moved all the way down to fifth place in the team standing. So Virginia Tech goes from first to fifth. Clemson goes from fifth to first. Robert, I think you have the best experience in this sort of situation because one of your athletes, Jimmy Weiner, the 20... 2009 Heps. Very similar situation. He wins the race. He gets DQ'd for taunting after the finish line. Now, you guys won the meet anyway, but can you weigh in? What did you think about this race? Was the DQ legitimate? Expand. I guess the outcome was the same as the Jimmy Weiner race, but the actions were not. Jimmy Weiner did not taunt anybody. His DQ was completely bogus. It was disgrace. I still hope that all the Dartmouth parents that booed him at the finish line. I mean, Dartmouth had nothing to do with the race. They should be ashamed of themselves. Ruined one of his best moments. What happened there is Jimmy Weiner realized the, the, the straightaways of Pan are short or whatever. He pulled the head. He put his hand up to celebrate immediately way before the finish line and then realized, oh God, I've got a ways to go and started looking over his shoulder to see if he was still going to win and kept looking over his shoulder. People thought he was taunting. He wasn't taunting. He was celebrating and then kind of panicked and looked bad. Well, didn't he bow to the fans afterwards? Did that not have anything to do with it? He bowed to the fans after the fans started booing him. When he started, when he got booed, he thought, this is the greatest moment of my life. Thank you. You, you, you. So he responded to the fans. That should not have been a DQ. Harry Groves was getting up there in age, and he, he thought that he, he was told that Jimmy gave the middle finger to the crowd, which didn't happen. But anyways, an excessive celebration – like that should not be a DQ. This case, so uh, on Saturday or Sunday, I'm going through the big conference meets. I want to see if there's any crazy finishes. And I see like a one-point finish in the ACC. I see all these teams like super close. And I'm like, wow, I got to see like what happened here in the 4x4. Four four. So I go back to watch the 4x4. Four four. I find it on YouTube. And I watch the whole thing. This is before the, I knew about the 400 DQ. And it was amazing. Like They're like... The announcer, Norm Ogilvie, the former Duke distance coach, who I think does a good job on commentating, kind of reminds me, former distance coach doing the commentating of their network, although now I've been banned from the Ivy League. Like He's like, we're, we're certain that UVA has won the team title. It was one of the epic mess-ups because they got the math wrong. And anyways, then I started reading the forum, and that's how I found about the DQ. What do I think about it? We don't want to be encouraging taunting. He crossed the finish line and then kind of got in the face of this other guy. I mean, that can result in a punch pretty quickly. 
But there was no punch thrown. I've got to give the Clemson runners some some respect for that. To me, it's not a DQ. It, it what he did was wrong, and it's like okay, well, where do you draw the line? Eventually, we have to DQ someone. They're gonna, that's a problem with track. Eventually, they're gonna you know if you allow too much jostling, they're eventually gonna knock somebody over. Eventually, you have to DQ. But to me, this would have been a warning or a yellow card. Hey, buddy, you do this again, you're out of here. But DQ. And then I was asking you, John, if you do DQ him, can't you just take him out of the results? Why do you bump everybody up? So it's, it ended up being a 15-point swing for Clemson. Not just 10, take him out. Because all two guys move up two points, one guy moves up one point. Well, if you, Robert, if you remove from the results, you can't just have an event with no champion. You need to have a winner. You're saying at the Olympic Games, if the, the guy who crosses the line first gets DQ'd, you don't award a gold medal? Now... Well, I'm not sure. Like in college football, right? If you taunt going down the finish line, going if you catch a pass and aren't in the end zone, taunt the defender, they do take away the touchdown, right? So I guess they're being consistent. No, they here. don't. They, well, maybe in college. I don't know about college football. The NFL, you score the touchdown. NFL, they don't. Yeah, you get a taunting penalty, but it's like 15 yards and the extra point or something like that. No, the problem here, Robert, is that we've talked about this on the show before. There's no in between. If you are taunting and you get called for a taunting penalty in track and field, the only thing they can do, well, I guess they do have yellow cards because we had that weird yellow card situation in the ACC indoors. I mean, that's really what they, it should be. Yellow card, if you do this again, off the track, on the track, whatever, yeah, then you're DQ'd or whatever. I, I don't have a problem with that. But the usually what happens is it's either you get no penalty at all or you get DQ'd and your result is stripped from the results. And I just, I don't like that. I don't like someone being DQ'd for something that happened after the race. The race, we have the outcome of the race. He won the race. It's over. Then, okay, yeah, he was taunting, but shouldn't be enough to strip the title. Give the guy a yellow card, slap on the wrist, and tell him don't do it again. But this determined the meet, and it shouldn't have. 100% no DQ. The rule needs to change. If we go the rules of the rules, whatever. There, there's some should be some leeway in the rules. Well, I don't know. Probably you. What is it called? Originalist out there. Follow the rules. Clarence Thomas is out there. This is sport. This isn't the Constitution. But yeah, the race was over. He won the race. You can't then undo the race because something he did after the race. Now you said, oh, NFL. Yeah, if you taunt it after you score. But what if you were like in the NFL, like. Well, before you score, you like do some like pelvic thrusting or something crazy, John. And the penalty was before you scored. Well, if you're unsportsmanlike, maybe then they can take it back. But I've never seen that happen. Because remember, Tyreek Hill, he used to throw up the deuces, and that was in the middle of a play. And he he got called for a penalty on that, but the touchdown would still count. Okay, and then we need to follow the NFL. Whenever in doubt, do what the NFL does, essentially. <laughs> I don't think that's a great great guiding principle. Oh, come on, you can't argue with the popularity of the NFL. I mean, yeah, you can argue about some other stuff. But yeah, no, yellow card here. And Yeah, the more I think about it, it's absurd. He actually crossed the finish line without doing anything wrong. Correct. Freshman runs all the way through the finish line, wins. The race is over. Everybody's past the finish line. Actually, one guy was jogging in from Florida State because he was hurt. Got one point in the back. But no, you don't undo the race. You, if, if you want to bar him from the rest of the meet, which actually might have impacted it, because I think he scored in the 200. Now, he didn't run the 4x4, four four, which is interesting. But 
Anyways, it was a crazy meet. I don't like these mega conferences with 15 teams because it ends up being too tight and too random. And like Florida State, had, they have a 994 guy. John, help me out with his name. Javon Martin. He didn't run the 100 final even though he made it. If he just walks the 100 final, he gets one point. First of all, if you're in the final, they should give you the point. You made the final. doesn't matter if you cross the finish line. Split the remaining points or give them to you. So they would have tied for the meet title. And if he had actually run the 100, they probably would have won. But Virginia Tech was probably the best team. But it's a cool story that Clemson ended up winning. Why? Because this is a team, November 2020, one of the, the school with a huge football program said they were going to cut track and field. And thanks, everyone became outraged. Russell Dinkins, Princeton alum, helped raise awareness from outside forces. People are like, look, this is kind of racist. Like, you're going to keep, like, I don't know what sports they have, like lacrosse, some of these white sports, and cut, and cut track and field. And to me, it doesn't make any sense. Like, even if it's just once every 10 years, some football guy wants to do track, you keep the track team around. So they reinstated the team in April 2021. So these guys, most of them must have been there. They must not have left. Somehow they kept the recruiting going. You think that would have really hurt your recruiting that year? It's amazing to me that they're winning the conference title. It is a really good story. Congrats to Clemson. You know, I know we were talking about this DQ thing, but great job to the athletes and the coaching staff there. One other notable thing from the ACC meet, Caitlin Tui made her 10K debut. She won it easily, 32-56. I mean, it's kind of impressive. It was only five days after she ran 15.03 in the 5K in California, and then she goes back to North Carolina. But it was a home meet. They want her to run at least one event. She got the team 10 points here. They went 1-2. I don't think she'll run that event in NCAAs, but who knows? I mean, the 10K 1500 double might be more feasible than the 5K 1500 double because the 10K final is on Wednesday. Sorry, Thursday. The 1500 final will be on Saturday. She'd have to run the 1500 prelims for. I, my guess is she'll just do the 1500 NCAAs. But yeah, I found it interesting. She ran the 10K here, John. Is there more significance to this? Because it seems like a really weird event for your starter to run. Now, maybe she didn't take away points from someone else, you know, and you, you can let one of your other runners, you know, win the 5K or something. But to make her go run the 10, if, you're, if you don't think you're going to run it at another meet, it's more toll in the body. I was just surprised. So I'm wondering if there could be more to this, but maybe I'm reading too much into it. Yeah, I mean, it's curious because she looked like she was tempoing for most of this. It wasn't very stressful for her. And they went 1-2 in the 10K and in the 5K. They... Their best runs in the 1500 was 6th and 8th. So you'd think, oh, the 1500 would make more sense, but... Then she'd have to run a prelim and a final. I don't know. I mean, they just probably just figured like, hey, take your pick. Which one do you want to do? But I don't I normally I would say, oh wow, running a 10K right after this high hard 5K bouncing back, that might be tough. But given how easily and how in control she looked in this race, I don't think it was really that much of a strain. So I yeah, it's gonna be curious, but my experience I expect she'll only do the 1500 NCAAs, but this at least opens the door if she wants to run the 10K, she can now. One final thing on this ACC meet. Do you guys know who the Clemson coach is? Oh, I actually wasn't trying to like ruin John's reputation here. I mean, 
Should uh, I? No, I don't think so. Mark Elliott? I didn't know who that was. I, I found this to be interesting. He's a Jamaican guy. You know, lots of Jamaican coaches. But he's a Jamaican distance runner. Second place at the 1989 NCA 3K. It's not your nor normal combo. I wonder if Kimoy Campbell got his records. I know those are really the only Jamaican uh, distance runners I could name. But now that you say that, it does it does ring a bell a little bit because Natoya Gould was at LSU and then she left LSU to go with her coach to Clemson when she was in the NCAA. Natoya Gould, obviously the great Jamaican 800 meter runner. And I was like, oh, that coach must have now been Mark Elliott. So I wasn't, I couldn't tell you his name off the top of my head, but obviously a good coaching job here to get them to the title. I've been exposed as a fraud. I should know these D1 head coaches, but I apologize. I'll do better next time. I keep thinking I want to have like a live daily show and let's run. I know y'all, young kids don't think anything should be live. It should all be on de demand, but like daily interview and let's run live 12 noon. Maybe it's not an interview every day. Like maybe one day a week, it's trivia against John. It's kind of like a Jeopardy type thing, but I don't want to be sued by Jeopardy. And we get someone on live and we just, they, they try to, I have the questions and they, we have a game and if they beat John, I give him a hundred bucks. And then we see how many, most people aren't going to beat you. So I'm not going to be having to give out a hundred bucks. That'd be fun. You know, I love, I love good trivia game, but I do wonder Robert, you know, he's the king of hypothetical ideas. Well, then what do you think is more likely a daily Rojo internet show? Robert breaks three hours for the marathon or Kelvin Kipton breaks two hours for the marathon. Which of those three things would happen first? The Kipton. Yeah, I think probably too. Kipton world record for sure. I don't know about the two hours. Okay, speaking of records, let's go to the SEC meet. It was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana over the weekend. It's weird. I couldn't watch this on Watch ESPN, but somehow my YouTube TV package has the SEC network, even though I live in Boston, Massachusetts. Whatever. I'm not complaining. I was glad this was on Saturday night. It was a great me to watch. Britton Wilson was obviously the star performer here. She breaks the collegiate record in the 400 in the prelims, 49-4-D. Then she comes back and breaks it again in the final, running 49-13, which is number four all-time by an American woman. She's now faster than Allison Felix ever ran in the 400. It's the fastest 400 by an American woman since 2009. That was phenomenal. And then she comes back 90 minutes later, wins the 400 hurdles in 53-28. So that was terrific. We also had collegiate records to start and end the meet because we had the men's 4 by one LSU runs 37-90, and then the final race, Florida runs 257 in the 4 by 4 And in both of those races, the runners-up also broke the old collegiate record. So Florida in the 4 by one Alabama in the 4 by 4 we also have Jaden Hibbert, who's this triple jump phenom from Arkansas. He was the world junior champion last year. This year, he breaks one of the oldest NCAA records on the books, which is Keith Connor's triple jump record. 
though it stood since 1982. The only older record is Henry Rono's in the steeplechase, which may never be broken. It's 8.05. I think it's going to take a long, long time until a, you might need like double super shoes or rocket shoes before an Ameri- by a collegiate athlete runs 8.05 in the steeplechase. And Hibbert is also, he only turned 18 in January. So really, he should be in high school still right now. This guy's just an absolute phenom. He goes 17.87. So really fun meet here to watch. We also had the return of Parker Valby. She won the 5K narrowly over Mercy Chell and got. Guys, was there a performance that you really want to talk about from this meet? What's your big takeaway a few days out from SECs? People may be shocked, but hey, since I coached at Cornell, we had two national champions in the triple jump. This triple jump guy blows me away. Just how good he is. Like, not only did he beat the longest record, John, he beat it by almost a foot. One full foot. Like, literally, like, 11.8 inches. Just destroyed it. And he improved his indoor PB, his PB from, like, by indoors, I think it was 754, like, by foot, basically, 3.3, like, 0.33 meters. If he does that again, he's basically right at the world record. So if he ever improves as much as he did right now, he's going to get the world record. I think we're looking at the, at the future world record holder in the triple jump. I mean, Jonathan oh, Edwards, I- it's time to get worried now. I I agree. This he's one of the he knows how talented he is. He, they had an interview with him Arkansas social media, and he was essentially saying, "Look, I only started this event three years ago." Like he knows he's been blessed with this incredible talent, and he's clearly doing the most to maximize it. Arkansas has a good jumps program. He's doing really well, but just seventeen eighty seven at eighteen is absurd. He's the world leader right now. Like He's going to be battling it out for the gold medal in Budapest this summer. Yeah, the world record, which has stood since 1995, is Jonathan Edwards' 18.29 meters. And you have to think that if it just stays healthy, that's going to be on his radar within a few years. Because 1787 at 18, it's just disgusting. It's crazy. The SEC track meet, though, as a whole, is crazy. For just a college track meet, I mean, you break the NCAA record and you get second place. That sort of sucks. But the other big thing, I think the big question mark, so there shouldn't be a question mark, Britton Wilson just keeps getting better and better and better. She says she's a 400-meter hurdler, and she's a really good 400-meter hurdler. But being world, if she wants to be a world champion this year, you might want to think about running the 400. I mean, is that crazy to think like she could be the 400 world champion? Of course, it's not crazy. The reigning, well, there's only two women who ran faster than her time. Only two women ran faster than 49 13 the last two years. One of them is Shawnee Miller Weibo, who is not competing this year because she just gave birth. And the other is Marilady Paulino of the Dominican Republic. So, yeah, when you're that good, when you're running 49-13, obviously you have to consider it. The other thing, though, we're missing some data because she hasn't really rocked a 400 hurdles this race this year. She's run 53-23 back in April. She ran 53-28 at SECs. But I feel like we're still waiting for that one event where she shows up and she's like, all right, I'm ready to rock. Maybe that comes at NCAAs. The double there, the 400 flat and 400 hurdles, they're only separated by 25 minutes. So either 
she goes for this crazy double and tries to win both. Or you say, hey, how about we show up, we run the 400 hurdles, which she would be the heavy favorite for, and see how fast you can really go in that race. So I'm still waiting to see how fast she goes in the 400 hurdles, but also we have to see how is Sydney McLaughlin Lavroni going to go in the 400? Because she has said she will be running that event more this year. Still TBD to what, whether she runs it at USA's and Worlds, but I guess there's a good chance she runs it at USA's because she has the buy in the 400 hurdles. And McLaughlin Lavroni is racing against Marilady Paulino, the reigning silver medalist, at this LA meet next weekend. So if Sandy McLaughlin shows up and she runs 48-something, and you're Britton Wilson, maybe you say, hey, wait, if Sid's going to run the 400 at Worlds, maybe the 400 hurdles is now open. But then you've got Femke Ball, who's been running really well as well. There are a lot of pieces here, but if I'm Britton Wilson, yeah, right now I would say 400. Probably her best shot at a gold medal, but maybe that changes in two weeks if Sydney McLaughlin Lavroni runs something crazy. It's really, really exciting, these two events right now. Why would that change her gold medal chances? Her gold medal chances, I still think, are best in the 400. Because you think she's going to run 50 point in the 400 hurdles? Beat Sydney well, in there? I'm saying if Sydney McLaughlin Lavroni only chooses to do the 400 at Worlds, she's only going to run the 400? No. She's bored of the 400 hurdles? Well, she's essentially completed the 400 hurdles. I think the most interesting outcome from McLaughlin of Roni is doing the double, but maybe she says, I have nothing left to prove in the 400 hurdles. This year, I'll win the 400 at Worlds, and then next year, I come back in the Olympics and actually try to do the double because I've shown that I can win the 400 flat. Thank God Tom Brady didn't have that mindset, John. I mean, he would have devastated you. He wins a couple of Super Bowls. I've got nothing left to prove in football. I'm going to go... you know, be a towboy for my model wife. Like she's got a lot left to prove. Like how about get a win streak like Edwin Moses or actually show up at a diamond league meet or like. Yeah. But you, Robert, you're saying, okay, she's, she's accomplished all these, the biggest things anyone would want. She's broken the world record four times. She's won Olympic and world gold. And now you're like, okay, she's done the big things, but has she won three SEC titles? Has she won the U.S. championship back-to-back? No. The next challenge for her is not in the 400 hurdles. It's in another event. That's why she re- she is running the 400 at this L.A. No. If I'm Sydney McLaughlin, my next challenge is sub-50 in the 400 hurdles. If, if, well, I, she can go for the 400 flat world record. Good luck on that one. Because a man basically got it. Someone, a woman, voided up on steroids. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I think she should. I, does Wilson go for the double? The uh, abuse these super athletes. I, I let her do what she wants. It's interesting, you know. She wasn't the third fastest woman in the, in, in the world last year in the 400 hurdles. She just got fourth at Worlds. So. Fifth at Worlds. But yeah, she was absolutely terrific in the 400 hurdles last year. If, as a track fan, I mean, I'd, I'd love to see the great athletes pushing themselves. So it would be kind of cool to see the double, but then you got to wor- wonder, you know, is that really enough time to recover? And is that the best if she, you're thinking long-term this season? Obviously, Arkansas always wants the team points, so maybe that'll factor into it. But I also would like to see just what could she do if she gets in a 400 hurdles race and she's really ready to go and she doesn't have to worry about doubling or anything. It's just, all right. All out 400 hurdles. Can you run 52? Can you run 51? 
that will be fun to see. I'll be I'll be excited to see Britton Wilson in NCAA's regardless. In terms of the double at Worlds, I was about to say I thought it was impossible. There was like I thought forty five minutes between events, but that's not the case. The hardest day would be on day two of the four hundred meter hurdles. You'd have to run. Day two of the 400, excuse me. That's also day one of the 400-meter hurdles. Run the first round of the 100, 400-meter hurdles at 650. Come back and run the semis at 910 of the 400. I think that's doable for both of them. So you could try to double at Worlds. Sydney could try the double at Worlds. I don't know what the USA schedule looks like. Well, USA, she doesn't have to worry about. So... It's conceivable. It's not an easy double, I'll say that much. It's six races in four days. Well, what I loved about the SEC meet was John came up with the stat. It was easier to win a medal at Worlds in three events than it was to win the SEC title. Like, Britton Wilson, four is four by four, and Jaden Hibbert, if, if they do that mark at Worlds, they all would have gotten a silver medal. That's how good it is. So, crazy conference. Yeah, and this 4 by 4 did you see the 4 by 4 guys? This was one of the races of the year. Because the, the conference is stacked. You've got Alabama, who's now the second fastest team of all time. You've also got Georgia, who's ran 258 earlier this year. That's one of the fastest times ever. They were only third in this race, but Florida, with just over 800 meters to go, they were fourth in this race and they didn't end up just end up winning they ended up breaking the collegiate record because on their last two legs they got a 43.97 from jacory patterson and a 43.32 from ryan willie on the anchor it's just really cool to see those guys overcome that deficit and win the race it was really dramatic a great four by four is it's a great way to end the meet. And I, I can't wait to see this rematch at NCAA's because I think it might take a collegiate record to win there as well. All right, John, there's a lot of Caitlin Tui fans, some creepily so, like people go to meets and film them, film her. I'm not sure if there's many Volby fans, but you seem to be on the ball a leader of one of the Volby fan clubs. You seem obsessed with her to me. You said she's back and blah, blah, blah. So tell us how great she is, John. Well, I wouldn't call myself obsessed with her. She's a popular runner, and she's one of the top runners in the NCAA. So when she runs a race for the first time in a while after injury, I'm going to be interested in how it goes. So, yeah, she ran the SEC meet. Now, granted, this is her second race of the season. She had run in April. But I don't know if you remember, Robert, there was a lot of excitement about Park of Albion and Caitlin Tui lost full when they were racing at the NCAA championships in Oklahoma. So I figured our readers might be interested in what Valby did as well. And this race, the SEC 5K, was really interesting because she was up against two top talents, Hilda Olemamoy and Mosey Challengar of Alabama. And Valby ran almost the entire race from the front. We know her kick is not the strongest. She opens up a gap. She's running with a compression sock on her left leg. And even during the race, Dwight Stones is commenting, he's saying she doesn't, she's looking, she looks like she's got a hitch in her stride. I didn't think it was that noticeable, 
until the end of the race. And part of it is, you know, you're just tired. She's trying to hold her off. But really, the last 100 meters, Valby did look to be straining a lot and did not look to be very smooth. And it was really exciting because Valby had a lead coming off the final turn, but Alomoy and then Chellingar are really charging and trying to run her down. Valby just holds off Chellingar, 1525.03 to 1525.07. Chellingar stopped her watch at the finish line, which I don't know if it cost her the win, but it didn't help. And sometimes it's like, I do feel bad for these athletes because when you're doing reps in practice, you always stop your watch and that sort of thing. It's a force of habit, but at the same time, you got to know the race is on the line. It's not that important to be stopping your watch. You just got to be focused on winning that race. So that was interesting to watch, but it is a great performance by Parker Valby. She runs one of the fastest times in the NCAA this year. And she's one of the talent, most talented runners in the NCAA. So I'm, she was runner-up to Caitlin Tui in cross-country and on the track in the 5K last year. So as a fan of the sport, I'm excited to see her back. But then I hear her comments after the race, and I just thought it was very curious. I was wondering, I'm like, oh, why is she even running at all? But this is what she said. Because John Anderson asked her, we know you've been injured. You know, what's, what's the situation? And she said, we actually don't really have an idea diagnosis of the injury yet it's been three or four months now but we found little injuries that are like i've seen so many doctors but basically yeah we don't have a diagnosis it's a lot to unpack i've done one track workout since february so i had no idea if my leg was going to hold up or not this is my first time wearing spikes since i think cross country no my one indoor race i want spikes didn't go too hot but i knew my team needed me so i'm glad i could push myself to score those points for my team it was very curious She's essentially saying she's still not 100% healthy, but she's done a lot of cross-training in the past. We knew that both in the fall and last spring when she gets second in NCAAs. is a similar situation to this one. She wasn't working out. She wasn't running very much. She was doing a lot of stuff on the arc trainer or swimming or the elliptical. I thought it was good to see her back, but clearly she's still not 100% healthy right now. I did think it was amazing. In the week that was, you pointed out, John, in the fall, we were debating who was going to win, her or Tui. And she got a big lead on Tui in that cross-country race. But what a sick talent. She only ran 15-32 last year at the SEC meet. Finished second there. So she lost to Challengott last year and then won, or excuse me, got second in the CAs. So she's ahead of where she was last year, seven seconds, and winning the meet. But does this prove once and for all that the whor- what I've been saying for years? Well, Robert, why didn't you win a cross country title? Blah 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 blah. The horse makes the jockey, not the other way around. Chris Solinsky is the greatest coach in the world. He great. He got Parker Volby. I'm giving Chris a lot of credit because he got her not to quit when she was down and out. There's nothing worse than being an injured college runner. Someone who wants to run in college and injured me, Chris Lear, Victoria Lynch. Ah, miserable. But Will Palmer, the new coach, she does one workout and she runs 15-25. So maybe they use the same cross-training they were using last year. But new coach, same result. Here we go. Robert's excuses. Sounds like Donald Trump. Losing and excuses. Uh-oh. Damn it. We just got cancellations. Well, Donald Trump doesn't actually provide exclusives. He, he just claims the outcome is different. When he loses, he just says he wins. He doesn't provide an excuse. So that, that's a little, Robert, I give credit. When he gets beat, he ex- at least admits oh. he got beat. Oh, John took it a step further. Even more cancellations. 
I'm <laughs> cancel for what? Telling the truth? I was just saying a talking point that was said this week. Uh, I don't know how 13 Ivy League titles in 10 years is even possible. Someone explain that to me. 13 10, that's like winning more than every meet, I think. Computers. I've got too many rings on my finger right now. Congratulations to Yale, by the way. They were last place in the men's and women's track and field championships. John, I assume that means Dartmouth beat them. So congratulations to Dartmouth, John. You beat somebody. Wow. Go up. Well, then you attack him. He lashes out. Attacks Yale, attacks Dartmouth. But... You know, one thing on Parker Valby, when I read how injured she was, I was sort of shocked she did this meet. But I want to give her major props for running it. She's on a college track team. Well, I'm losing my voice. The team needed her to score points. She stepped up to the plate and scored points. Like, it's not all just about NCAs or whatever. It's clear she takes being on a track team seriously. And uh, gutsy performance. Very, very impressive when I read how little she's been running. They didn't actually need her to score points this year because they were... 112, third was 86, first was 134. Maybe she didn't know that at the time. Last year, they needed her. She won the meet for them. One final point here on the SEC meet. I watched the broadcast. I'm going to need more enthusiasm from Dwight Stones on this stuff. Uh, the 5K, he kind of made a mistake. He called the race too early. He just said it's over when it clearly wasn't over the Alabama runners. Even a few seconds earlier, he said, watch out for these Alabama runners. I was like, you're absolutely right, Dwight. They are not dead yet. But then he reverses course and says it's over. And then as soon as he says that, Chellengard starts charging. And generally, I just don't think it serves any purpose to say a race is over unless it's very, very clear that someone has an insurmountable lead. That was not the case here. But my mate, my bigger complaint, I think Dwight Stones is very well spoken. I always enjoyed his field event updates when I first started following the sport. But I, I think. The issue is, in some of these races, we had collegiate records down to the wire finishes. About as exciting as an NCAA conference meet can get. And yet his voice remains very level as if, you know, it's the second lap of a 1500 prelim. You can have all this information and stuff, but you, the people who are watching this race, you, you got to get them a little bit excited. You got to show that this is a big moment and raise your voice to meet the moment. So... That's what I would say. Dwight Stones, he does the NCAAs as well. Just a little bit more enthusiasm at the end of these races, I would like to see. I didn't watch the broadcast, but my, my, my criticism of... The, I've done a few broadcasts with Bill Spaulding, who's now who's done some Olympic stuff. He's now the voice of the New Jersey Devils. The first time I worked with him, I'm like, this guy's amazing. And my complaint with my little experience is, I like Dwight. But he's not a play-by-play -play guy. I've done broadcasts. I'm not a play-by-play -play guy either. They've got him in the wrong job. It's ridiculous that they've got someone who isn't a professional play-by-play -play guy doing play-by-play. -play. Now, you, for track and field, you would think you need a play-by-play -play guy who knows track to do it, but it's not true. Um, who was the guy that did the Olympics forever on NBC? Tom Hammond. Tom Hammond. I was told recently in the last month or two that he knew nothing about track and field. He didn't know. The, he was smart enough to like know the big names and get excited. And I thought he did a good job. I know the purists may think, oh, he didn't know enough. But if you, if you get a professional play-by-play -play guy, which they should do, 
then it'd be amazing. Get Bill Spalding to do the damn NCA meet. Hockey's over. But it, it, it's a completely different thing, play-by-play play and, and, and analysis. They're, they're just not the same thing. And he's used to doing field event updates his whole life. And for some reason now, because there's no one left in track and field, he's doing, you know, play-by-play, play, which he shouldn't be doing. Yeah, in general, I think he's a good broadcaster. But yes, the end of those races, you need to hype up that the stakes are real. These What we're seeing is amazing. And too often, I feel underwhelmed by that part of his his call. All right, Weldon said one thing that wasn't technically true. He said, Ford needed the points from Parker Valby. They were probably wouldn't know it at the time because there's still a few events going on, but they were 20 points out of first and 30 points ahead of third. So, but last year they needed the points and she won the meet for them. But in terms of points, there is nothing better to stepping up for your team. It, it's special and track is normally individual. And what re I really noticed that in the Pac 12 meet, John. And you talked to, to Andy Powell, the coach at Washington. So, Pac 12 normally on the men's side, 15 years in a row, Oregon wins. Not much to see here. This year, everyone knew Oregon wasn't going to win. And some of the message board were saying Jerry Schumacher, the new coach there, didn't enter in everybody and was blah, blah, blah. John's done the research. He basically entered everybody that he had that's any good. So they just don't have any a very good team this year. The team title was up for the win, and Washington went all out. You had Joe Wascom, the NCAA 15 meter champ, returning to the event that he ran as a freshman, the steeplechase. And I thought that was cool, John. So you talked to Coach Powell, like, explain this. Like, all the guys were all in. They didn't care. Maybe tell people who haven't read your article, like, what people were doing. And some kids were just running in the back and doubling up. And Yeah, Wascom didn't just run the steeplechase, Robert. He tripled. He did the steeple, the 1500, which has a prelim and a final, and the 5K. Now, he ended up dropping out of the steeple because he lost his shoe. He dropped out of the 5K as well. But, yeah, that whole thing was he like... scored in zero, zero, zero. Correct. He did not score any events. It's amazing that they won the title. They tripled an NCAA champion. He got zero points, and they still won the thing. So congrats to Washington. Their whole thing was, look, we really want to win this meet. We've got a chance to do it. Washington had never won the Pac-10 or Pac-12 meet. Oregon had a stranglehold on it. But they finally have the, the athletes to do it. So, yeah, he was going to go out and... Andy Powell was telling me, you know, he thought he had a pretty decent chance to run very well in the steeplechase. And this losing his shoe, Andy made the call and just said, hey, step off the track. It's not worth it. You know, going over barriers, landing in water pits with one shoe, that's not something you want to do with your star miler. So I think that was the right call, even though it's a conference meet. He probably could have scored a couple points with one, with one shoe. The 1500 was interesting, though, because... You look at the results of the men's 1500 final at Pac-12s on paper, and it doesn't make any sense. Because the winner is Nathan Green of Washington, who ran a great race. 51-9, lost lap to win it in 342-22. Really impressive stuff by him. Like He's going to be a contender for the NCAA individual title in Austin. But I'm looking, I'm seeing he wins it in 342-22. Seventh place, Luke Hauser, the NCAA mile champion, Seventh place, 347. So he's five seconds back. Eleventh place, Joe Wascom, the NCAA 1500 champion. 354, 12 seconds back. And I'm just like, how is this possible? But Andy Powell's explanation was, he was like, look, Nathan Green was in great shape. They were pretty confident he was going to win this. Even though this was his first race of the season, he had this nerve impingement. And they 
held him out until this year. So he needed to get the regional qualifying standard as well, which he did. He ran 3.42. But with his other guys, Luke Hauser and Joe Wascombe, he wanted them to hang back. He had Luke coming back in the fifteen in the 5K. They're like, look, we might end up doubling you if you need the points, so just hang towards the back, try to get a few points. We've got other guys who can score in this event. They had Aaron All get fourth and Aiden Ryan get sixth. They were just he's just like sort of telling Wascom and Hauser, this is the way he explained it. Hang towards the back and try to get a few points and we'll focus on Nathan Green getting the big points and winning it. That was the explanation given to me. Wascom, you know, eleventh place three fifty four, that's obviously not what he wanted, but Essentially, what Andy said was, you know, DNFing in the steeple emotionally and physically, it was a little draining for him and coming back in the 1500. And then also, they're at the end of this hard training block. And Wascom usually takes a little longer to come out of it than some of the other guys. Because we saw it at NCAA indoors. Wascom did not have a great final race when they had all their guys try to run fast in Boston, but then he showed up and ran well at the NCAA indoor meet. So he wasn't too worried. I'm not that worried about Wascom, but yeah, you know, not a, obviously you would like, you would expect more than zero points from him in this meet. But the other the impressive thing is they still won all five distance races. They won the 800 and steeple with a couple of Princeton grad transfers, Rojo. And then they had Brian Fay double in the, 5k and 10k and they had nathan green win the 1500 roger what do you make of this wascom explanation and the whole situation coach overthinking it have him run in the back and pick up a few points so you can double back in the 5000 what like that was the thing at cornell when we were in for the team title i would abuse people like jimmy wine or double triple them and you realize like they're only getting like two more points than they would if you just did them in like two events versus three because they're knocking other guys down on the team team down. Like, I thought it was cool that Wascom wanted to do the steeple in the fifteen, but th- this other nonsense about running in the back of the pack in the fifteen hundred. What are you saving energy for the five thousand by running a little bit slower and getting one or two points, and then you're going to get some points in the five thousand where you didn't get any points anyways? That doesn't make any sense. But, hey, they won the meet. Guys bought it. I mean, I can criticize him for the specifics. What what caught me in this was that Andy and Marika Powell have the team. Like, they were all in on the team. And that's special. Yeah, no, they've got a great culture there. And these guys, they have a nice depth of talent. And also the guy, the athletes they have on the team have bought into the team thing. They're willing to run for each other and that sort of stuff. So huge credit to them. Congrats on the, the victory for Washington. And they did have like Brian Fay, Terrific me. He beat Charles Hicks in the 10 K the NCAA cross country champion. Then comes back and wins the five. Like he was the guy who carried them. So they have some other guys who can step up. Even if, you know, some of their NCAA champions weren't at their best in this meet. Just one thing about this double. So Luke Howard, the NCAA 15 meter champ, NCAA miles champion, right? John? He's told to run in the back. He gets seven, so that's two points. So that he could come back in the five thousand, where he's not very good, and he didn't score any points. Like you've got the mile champion. If you want the points, just go get the just go get the eight or six and the fifteen hundred. Now you're going to push a couple other guys down. I get it, but 
I don't know. Yeah, it might have been it might have been a case of overthinking things, but the strategy it got them where they needed to be. They still scored twenty points in the fifteen hundred, and they won the meet. So, would they have won without my Princeton boys? I don't like it when when all these Ivy Leaguers just hand titles to Pac twelve teams. They would not have won. Those guys scored a combined twenty points, and Washington won meet, the meet by fourteen. So, Princeton played a role in this victory. So I, I take back all the congratulations to Andy Powell. I take it all back, actually. How hard is it to get an Olympian in the steeplechase to win the steeplechase and to get a NCAA fourth placer to win the 800? I mean, it's all about recruiting, recruiting, recruiting. Don't tell anyone. But that's part of being a good coach, Robert, is recruiting athletes. Like You, you can't say, oh, no credit for winning the meet, but wait, these people ran on the team and you got them to run there because you recruited them. Like, that's part of when you build, start building a successful culture, people want to start going to your school. That's part of it. It all factors in. You can't just ignore the recruiting equation. And I think that's the other thing when we talk about the Oregon men. Now, first of all, you got to give Jerry credit. Oregon women still cleaned up. They won again this year, 158. They beat USC, who's always pretty strong. So they certainly gets credit for that. But then people are looking and they're like, Oh, the sky is falling. And obviously, sixth place, Oregon, you're expected to win every year. You're not given a lot of excuses. But I would say this. Jerry Schumacher was hired right before the World Championships. So instead of... And he's still the head coach at Bowman Track Club. So when Jerry is hired, instead of being able to say, hey, I'm bringing transfers and recruiting everyone and getting people to stay, he's focused on getting his athletes to perform their best at the biggest meet of the year. The other thing is, when you're a head coach hired to transform an NCAA program, if you're coming from another NCAA school, usually you can bring a couple of your old athletes as grad transfers or whatever, something like that. Jerry couldn't do that coming from Bowman. He also hasn't been in the college game for a while, so you know it might take him a year or two to master the transfer portal, that sort of thing. Like, sixth place, yeah, it's a bad result, but I am willing to say, hey, give him a, a year or two to see if he can get some more talent onto this team once he figures everything out. I don't know. Am I giving him a pass here, Robert, or do you think this is a fair explanation? A pass? I don't understand why anyone would criticize him. He got hired after the recruiting window's over. I guess you could try to poach some people from other teams, and then you we're upset about the people? Like, it, it's ridiculous. It's like, Absolutely ridiculous. And then the people are going to say, you're just like Jerry. They're going to say, the distance girls scored the lowest amount of distance points in like 15 years. Who cares? The, the, the girls won. The men were down. A couple of Pac-12 champions who had eligibility, like the Catholic and stuff, didn't come back this year. People are like, oh, that's negative. Maybe he didn't want them to come back. Maybe he's trying to free up the scholarships. Who knows? I, I give him a total pass. He's got like some of the top recruits in the country coming there distance-wise for next year. These the sprinter didn't show up. Tobogo didn't show up. You think that would have helped? Oh my god! How many points would they score with Tobogo? Thirty. Was this Tobogo thing ever going to happen, though? I feel like we were sold a bill of goods on that. Maybe that was just I don't know. But they no. The thing is, like, yeah, most of the time when a new coach comes in in their first year, you don't really judge them on the results their first year. But because it's Oregon and because they had this big win streak, there are these expectations. So, yeah, I would say. He was hired to, to revitalize the long-distance program and the cross-country program. Phil Knight's once cross-country. They were better in cross-country than they've been in a long time on the men's side with, with no talent. 
So Right. So that's my question moving forward, Robert, is I do think they'll have a good cross-country program, a better cross-country program than they had under Ben Thomas because that's Jerry's forte. My question is, like, moving forward, what Robert Johnson, the other Robert Johnson, was really good at doing in Oregon was filling out the rest of the roster. They would usually have a star in the field events or, you know, a few sprint stars. Is that still going to be a priority? Because that's how you win conference titles in track and field. You you need more than just distance athletes to do it. And that's that's going to be something I'll be monitoring moving forward. But I do think the distance program will be better. And it's going to start next year with Connor Burns and Simeon Burnbaum, two of the top recruits in the high school class of 2023. They're both headed to Oregon. So I, I think they will be good in the distances very soon. The first year is largely a reflection of the old coach. There's very little you can do with you got the athletes you got, you got to do the best with them. But it's a and speaking of the old coach, where's Robert Johnson? This guy was amazing. They won 15 straight titles. Now some are under Vinland Anna. That's an amazing streak. Robert's here talking about winning Ivy League titles in a row. This is the Pac 12. I was shocked when I heard that stat. And you know, oh, Jerry's a great women's coach and not a good men's coach now. That doesn't make sense. No. What happened this year is largely a, f- a reflection of what was in the cupboard when Jerry got there. And he's got some really good men's recruits coming in next year. So I expect this program to go back up. I don't expect them to win 15 pack 12 titles ever again. Oh, I do. We're not going to even care about the Pac-12 titles in the future. You're going to have a Pac-12 without USC, without UCLA. It's going to be Oregon and who? Like three sisters of the poor? Who's going to be in the conference? It's going to be a joke of a meet. Washington like- just scored 151 and won the meet. So, Actually, now I agree with Robert. Who else is going to be in the in the conference? Stanford. Okay. Stanford's not going to beat them because it's just too hard to get the kids in. They don't have enough mission spots. Maybe every once in a blue moon. What's interesting to me is some people, again, where everyone was criticizing Jerry, was came out that if someone was supposed to host the meet, they couldn't host it. Who was it, John? Oregon State. And they offered the meet to Oregon, and Oregon declined. People are like, Jerry's not doing anything for the locals. You know, the Oregon team didn't even run the Oregon relays. My theory was, they said they didn't have enough time to get ready for the meet. I don't necessarily believe that because Mount Sinai got time for the meet, but I'm glad they didn't host the meet. There's too many meets in Oregon. And there was a threat about this. And a guy or gal who's in Oregon had a great post. Volunteer fatigue was their posting under unregistered name. Says the article left out a big part of the story. After last season, there was constant talk in Eugene of volunteer fatigue. They hosted a ton of meets, and it was taking a toll on staff and volunteers. Many of them are getting up there in age. It's just not just the UO meets. Hayward already has the Oregon Preview, the Oregon Relays, the Marathon, the Twilight, the High School Championships, Outdoor Nationals, High School, USATF Nationals, Junior Olympics, Pre-Classic. Like, I never thought about that. I'm thinking about it for me as a fan perspective. I'm tired of going to Eugene every year. Can you imagine if you're a volunteer, if you're just a local in this small town? You know, we wonder why the attendance is down at like NCAAs and stuff because they have a so-called major track meet at some level almost every week. It's too many for the volunteers. I don't have any any issues with Oregon not hosting. 
I like I said, I've I've been a proponent. I think Mount Sac should host more events because they have this big, beautiful track. It's in a populous area of the country. It's good to have Mount Sac hosting meets. I don't know what, what the attendance was for this thing, but I don't have any issue with Oregon passing. They're doing their duty and hosting all these other things. But the point Ken Go, who reported on this story in the Oregonian, was saying is that back in the Lenana Robert Johnson days. Oregon would just volunteer to host everything essentially. And that is one thing that's, it's kind of curious that that isn't the case, but also they hadn't hosted the volume of meets that they did the last few years, you know, because well, remember last year they had pac 12s, NCAAs, USAs and worlds and the pre-classic. So yeah, maybe I can understand if there is a little fatigue there. Okay guys, one more college results did not make the week that was, this is from the Big Sky Conference. Men's 1500 meters. Nico Young was running this fresh. Results. One, Colin Solomon, 349.18. Freshman, Northern Arizona. Second place, Nico Young, 349.95. Are you guys impressed by this? Colin Solomon takes down Nico Young at 1500. Everyone's saying, where's Colin Solomon? He's getting a really good season together. He came back and won the 800 later. And sure, he was the miler in high school, but like he just beat the kid who was two years older than him on his high school team, who was the star. He's never beaten him, right? I assume, I assume that's safe to say. I just think this is a big win for him. Yeah, Colin Solomon, not Solomon. There's not an extra syllable in there, but I would... I was impressed. I was trying to figure out how impressed to be because I saw he won the 800 and the 1500. I'm like, normally if a kid does the, the conference meet, it's really impressive. The big sky doesn't have quite the depth. He's going up against his teammates, but I mean, yeah, beating Nico Young in the 1500, that's no joke. He beat Duncan Hamilton, who from Montana State. Now, Mont Duncan Hamilton was tripling at this meet. He ran the 5K and the steeple as well, but yeah, I think it is time to... We already said this a few weeks ago when he ran 146 and he ran 1342 earlier this year. Colin Solomon is really putting it together. He's in great form. I'm really excited to see how he does at the NCAA level. Because remember, this guy... Sorry, yeah. The, you know, NCAA championships. Obviously, he's already competing in college. But he was the top recruit out of high school last year. One of the top recruits maybe in U.S. history. It was He had a great... He's had a great outdoor season to this point, and now, you know, he'll really get the big test at the NCAA regionals and the NCAA championships. But certainly, should be excited. Another great weekend for Colin Solomon. I'm more impressed that he was able to pull off the double than beat Nico Young because you're tired and he's racing a bunch of 800 guys fresh. And y'all act like the big guy's terrible, but the guy that was second place. Wolverine's Herman of Idaho. He's run 146.90. Now, that was last year, but 147.80 this year. So, the kid's got some legit speed. You know, for someone who is the high school cross country champion in America to be winning the 800 as conference meet, mainly not the greatest conference, is pretty good. You know, and I think we see Nico Young's flaw here. It's the kick. Who's got a better shot for a global medal? It's not even close. Wait, you're saying it's Colin Solomon? Yeah. I mean, I think they're both a ways away from that at the moment. I'm not but... sure. Oh, they're both a <laughs> That's an understatement. 
just trying to think like maybe Solomon can run in the end up being a 5,000 guy and kick down for the bronze. I guess he could run the 1,500 too. All right. Last topic I wanted to hit before we go to the interview with Monica Puig. This LA meet, the LA Grand Prix, that will be in at UCLA on May 27th. They came out with the fields. We hinted at it earlier. It's really exciting. The people they've got to go to this meet. Great job by the organizers. I mean, it helps. You've got Sidney McLaughlin Lavroni is coached by Bobby Kersey, who is helping to promote the meet. But that women's 400 is going to be fantastic because you've got McLaughlin Lavroni against Paulino. That's a real test. Like that. That's really the best 400 runner you could put her up against because she's the silver medalist behind Shawnee Miller-Webo the last two years. So... Wait, and we need we got to give her credit for this. I, I criticize this woman nonstop for never racing. Like she's not dipping again. This is not another case of dipping your toes into the four hundred. This is like who's the best person in the world? Okay, I'll race them my first time out. Kudos to her, both yeah. of them. That's gonna be awesome. Mono Duplantis, Sam Kendricks, Chris Nelson, the pole vault, women's hundred. Murray Jose Talu, who just ran ten seventy eight in Claremont against Shakari Richardson against Aaliyah Hobbs, who set the American record in the 60 indoors, undefeated outdoors wow. so far. That's going to be a big-time showdown. Krauser against Kovacs in the shot. Men's 100, Christian Coleman. The rest of the field, not amazing, but you know Coleman's very good. Arian Knighton against Kenny Bednarik in the 200. Michael Norman is going up to the 400. I don't know if this is him already abandoning the 100 or if him just... He wants to see where he's at. It's a test. I don't know. But he's facing a top field. Karani James, who medaled at Worlds last year. Champion Allison, one of the top Americans, 43.7 PB. So that's going to be a great 400. Roy Benjamin's in the 400 hurdles. Men's 800, really good. Jake Whiteman, Bryce Hopple, Noah Cabet, Clayton Murphy, Isaiah Jewett, Jonah Coetch. So you've got the... Most of the U.S. team from Worlds last year. I'm kind of surprised Brandon Miller isn't in this race, considering he's a courtesy athlete, and maybe they're going to add him. I don't know. That men's 1500 we talked about earlier: Timothy Chariot, Reynold Chariot, Cole Hawker, Cooper Tia, Sam Prakel, the U.S. indoor champion. Well, but can I say something about that at men's 800? I'm excited for that. Yeah, we can see how Noah Cabet's doing under Julian. He didn't do well in that most recent 800, but. Murphy, I feel like he's turning the corner. We're going to find out. We get to see Whiteman for the first time. These fields are amazing. Yeah, no, that Diamond League quality in a lot of events. And the ones, you know, okay, maybe some of them, you might not have the Diamond League depth, but you've got Americans that people want to see racing. Like, we want to see, like, Kubiti is obviously Diamond League quality. Cole Hawker, this would be his outdoor opener. Jake Whiteman, this would be his outdoor opener. That's going to be a lot of fun. You've got the world record holder, Toby Amasan, the world champ in the 100 hurdles against Jasmine Camacho-Quinn, who's the Olympic champion. Yeah, it's it's a stacked meet. We'll give a full preview on the Friday 15 next week, but this is what you want to see. This is exactly what I've been talking about. Big time meet, stars of track and field, Sidney McLaughlin, Lavroni. I mean, it would be great if a thing Mo hopped in this 400 as well. She doesn't appear to be running this meet. She didn't sign up for any meets that we know of so far outdoors, but everyone who's there, and I think this is going to be on NBC, right, as well. So should be a fantastic event. 
But it almost isn't that almost just as big of a story as who is there as who isn't there. What's up with all thing Mo? By this time last year, she'd raced five times. That's a great question, Robert. Because indoors, she said, you know, she was supposed to run Milrose and then pulls out. She explained that still taking her a little time to get adjusted to Bobby Kersey. It was a new training group. You know, she'd moved from Texas to LA. But yeah, we're getting, it's now May 16th. And I think Mo has not raced since last year's World Championships in July 2022. So that's 10 months. She hasn't said she's going to be racing any outdoor meets yet. She hasn't announced any. I mean, she's still got three months to Worlds. She doesn't need to run any meets because she's got the buy as the defending champion. And we even saw last year when... Dalula Muhammad didn't even need to race USA's and they still put her on the world's team. It's, I mean, I feel like the precedent has been set. If you can just claim you're not 100%, you don't even need to run USA's these, this, these days to get the buy. But I assume we'll see her at USA's either in the 400 or the 800. But yeah, I don't know. People want to know. You know, she is one of the most talented athletes in the United States. She's the reigning world and Olympic champion. I said she's one of the biggest stars in the sport. Before we got on the podcast, Robert disagreed. Why do you disagree, Robert? Is it? I think she's got a great personality. She's incredibly talented. Do you think it's because she doesn't race enough, or why? Why don't you think she's a star? I mean, I guess she is a star. I just, I don't know. I, I can name you know three or four people that I think are way bigger stars: Shelly and Fraser Price, Marcel Jacobs, stuff like that. For a twenty-year-old, essentially undefeated as a pro. U.S. distance runner. I think because she doesn't compete, she's probably not as well-known. Tokyo Olympics were a weird time. She's got time. But I think for her accomplishments, she should be more well-known than she is. But get at this L.A. meet. Compete on TV. You know, that sort of stuff. But if she keeps winning worlds, keeps winning Olympics, doesn't matter. What, America what do you mean it doesn't matter? I, I think... Fans, I think Mo is quite likable. I think fans just want to see her competing more. And I guess for her, in terms of like her legacy in the sport or whatever, like, yeah, she she shows up and she's already the American record holder. I mean, she's accomplished more by the age of 20 that, than almost every U.S. distance runner would have accomplished in their entire career. But, and she's going to be judged on those world titles, but. She's not, she's just not racing a lot. And I think I, I like seeing her race. She's an exciting athlete. Remember her US final last year against RJ Wilson, the world final against Keely Hodgkinson? Those were battles to the line. They were fantastic. And it really showed you how gritty Mo is. When she gets challenged, she responded. And I think what has happened so far in her career, what it seems to be, is that she only likes ra- racing when she's a. You know, 100% ready to go. When she goes out there and races, you know you're going to get something special from a thing, Mo. But if things aren't perfectly set up for her to run well, she either isn't going to race, or as we saw at Milrose last year, she dropped out with a lot to go when she was going to take an L. So she's still 20 years old. There's a lot, you know, a lot of attention and pressure heaped on her. But yeah, I just think people, when you're one of the big stars and you've got that talent, and we know the special things she can do when she gets on the track. Everyone in the sport is going to want to see her compete. She's going to be a big drawer. 
And to her, maybe that's not the biggest thing, though. She's She said, you know, we went on that podcast a few months ago, the Pivot podcast, and she talked about how it very much seemed that modeling is something that excites her a lot more than running and racing at the moment. So, yeah. Yeah, her fans want to see her race. I mean, that's what I want. Go on her Instagram. First comment. I don't know if this means it's the most liked or what. Are you going to run this year? Dying to see you compete on the track again. Clapping emoji. I mean, it's just... They're sports stars first and foremost for this, right? We want to see them compete. We need to see them compete. Now, if you just show up for the playoffs and the championships, you'll still be pretty famous, but it'd be nice to see her before then. Yeah, and this LA meet, though, it is a little tricky, like... There's the only event she could run here is I, mean, I guess you could run in the 1500 if she wanted to, but there's no 800, so it was likely she'd have to step down the 400. Would she want to race Paulino and McLaughlin Laroni? Maybe not, but yeah, is she going to run a Diamond League before USA's? Is she going to run anything before USA's? We haven't we don't know well, at this point. I didn't realize that they might, maybe Cozy doesn't want them racing each other. Very possible. Create tension in your own thing. So I'm going to give her a pass on this meet, but look, no one's sitting around thinking where's Emmanuel Career? Why isn't he racing? He's won the Worlds in the Olympics the last two years, just like I'll think, well, I know he's not American, but Emmanuel Career did not open, run an 800 in 2021 until May 29th. He didn't do it last year until June 2nd. Now, he did open his season on April 3rd and May 21st, both those years. But And he raced a lot and was not afraid to lose because he was losing a lot before he got it right. He runs but, a bunch of Diamond Leagues, too. Like, Emmanuel Curry, if this is the thing, Mo, she, I mean, she was hot at the end of last season. I think that's why she said she shot her season down, but Emmanuel Curry doesn't have a history of just not racing very often. Like he has hit the circuit and will run these diamond league races. And that's something I think Mo really hasn't done very much. But Mo's not the only one not racing. Has Brandon Miller, her boyfriend raced John? You said no, right? He's done nothing this year. Zero races. Someone confirm that. I don't see any results from him on his profile. Are they both injured? I, I, I would like an update. Hopefully next week we can get an update. Because maybe Kirstie's having trouble coaching Nate. Maybe they're both injured. It's only two athletes. You can over you can overreact when it's just two athletes. They can both get hurt. It has nothing to do with Kirstie. And also, John, I'm going to put you on the task. We didn't mention it. But the Nairobi meet, there was a woman from Uganda. <clears throat> I forgot her last name. Help me out. Woman's 1500. Can I? Chamusto, I believe. Janet Chamusto. 401 with a 59 last lap. Looked amazing. She's like 24, but she's been racing since 2014. She'd never broken 414 until this year. Now she's run 401 with a 59. I I, I, I don't know how you could get that much better. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me in one year. I wonder if she's like chronically anemic, had really bad coaching. She, she uh, The article I read last night, John, she's got the same coach as Joshua Chapter guy. She's global sports, apparently. I assume she hasn't always been that case. Please reach out to them and write a feature on her, please. Thank you. Okay, I will try to get the inside scoop about that. But yeah, she I, that, that was one of the most stunning results of that meet. 401 closing in 59 you know, from someone none of us had ever heard of before. Okay, that is going to do it for the regular portion of the podcast. We have our interview coming up with Monica Puig. So make sure you stay tuned and she'll be up right now.
it's really cool story because we always say track and field doesn't have quote unquote fluke results, but so when we went to the 2016 Olympics, everybody was there. Her highest world ranking was like 23. Never got beyond the quarters of a, of a major, but she won the damn Olympics. And now she's running marathons. We are very pleased now to welcome on a special guest, Monica Pui. She was a professional tennis player for 12 years, during which time she won more than $3.5 million in prize money. And most famously, the gold medal at the 2016 Olympics in Rio for Puerto Rico, defeating Germany's Angelique Kerber in the final. She retired last year from tennis due to a shoulder injury at age 28 but has now carved out a new athletic goal, which is finish all six of the World Marathon Majors by 2024. She's already halfway there. Last fall, she ran the New York City Marathon in 4.32. In Boston in April, she ran 3.49.47. And then just six days later, she improved her personal best to 3.42.04 in London. Monica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And just by listening to, to that marathon journey, it makes me want to get out and run another one. I mean, it's pretty impressive. I'm looking at like 432, 349, 342. You like, it's very not, not every marathon it has that progression of just lopping off times uh, every race out. So I think there are a lot of people listening who are probably pretty jealous of that progression. I'm very, I'm very competitive. You improve 50 minutes in about, what, four or five months and then seven minutes in one week. I mean, most people, what, what made you want to run two marathons in back-to-back weeks? Like, that's kind of crazy. I mean, everybody asked me the same thing, what that story kind of was like. So um, thankfully, you know, due to my sporting background, having an Olympic gold medal, uh, I'm able to reach out to some of these races in order to, you know, gain entry because um, my husband and I, we run together. So Sometimes we're kind of like a package deal. We want to run them together. We want to accomplish everything together. Um, so, you know, for London, I was sponsored towards the end of my career by New Balance. So that's how I was able to run in New York since it's a New Balance sponsored race. And the same thing with London. Um, they had helped me gain entry into that race, which was, you know, awesome. And, and I was super, super grateful but for Boston, you know, that was, it's, it's one of the hardest races to get into. And, um, you know, I know that there are some celebrities, former athletes and, and things like that, that are starting to run some of these races and want to run marathons as well. So I reached out to the marketing team in Boston and, and, you know, in hopes that, you know, they could have me on the race. And, um, I had already been accepted into London and hadn't heard anything back from Boston. And so my husband and I were like, okay, well, let's just plan our trip. Uh, to London and we're going to run this marathon and you know Boston I don't know we'll run it whenever we have the we have the chance obviously um, nowhere near a Boston qualifying like a good Boston qualifying time so um, that's something eventually in the future I'll try and work on but um, I think it was about a month before these races Boston reached out and said of course we would love to have you and you know there's a bunch of you know promo stuff that we can do and I got all excited and then you know, it, it just kind of hit us in in that short moment that we were going to have to do both of these races in the same week. And we're like, is that even possible? Can we do that? Um, you know, it's it's going to be very hard because after New York, we were both destroyed. And the funny thing about New York is that we ended up getting married a week later. 
So, I mean, we were already kind of accustomed to, my husband and I accustomed to doing really big things back to back. And, um, you know, one of the great things about my sporting background and being uh, in tennis for so long was that I do really know how to take care of my body and recover really quickly. Because in tennis, sometimes you can play a three and a half hour tennis match and you have one day to recover before going out onto the court and possibly needing to do it all over again. So for me, playing um, three and a half hours then running for three and a half hours is, well, you know, in, in tennis, you have a lot more stop and starts and running. It's more consistent. I do have a really good background in, in knowing what my body needs and how to recover quickly in such a short amount of time. Um, so, I mean, that wasn't scary. I think the, the thing that was m- most scary to me was just, uh, you know, my feet were just, you know, incredibly bruised. Used, uh, I think I got a pedicure this week and I saw my toenails for the first time and I was disgusted with how many black fingernails I had on my toes. It was disgusting. But now you're a true runner. I mean, every everyone listening to this podcast <laughs> is like, okay, yeah, now she's one of us. If you've lost a toenail or something like that, that's a, that's a sign of a real runner. Um, I'm curious, you know, Boston, oh, it's yeah. a bucket list race for a lot of recreational runners. What was the experience for you running the race? Do you have any favorite or not so favorite memories from Marathon Monday? So leading up to the race, obviously, I'm not really one to get scared of things. I get nervous leading up to a race or a match or something. I'm never really afraid of of the course or anything. But obviously, the buzz around Boston is the hills and the downhills. And then be careful and save yourself for these uphills. And it's going to be really be careful. So everybody was starting to make me pretty afraid. And I went into Boston very confident. And I was like, look, nothing, nothing's going to scare me. We have some hills here in Georgia and nothing was going to be higher than the elevation that we usually did some of our hills when we were running on. So I was like very confident, very comfortable. Um, So obviously when there's all this talk about the hills and be careful and save yourself and this and that, and obviously I wanted to run a sub four marathon I started to get very nervous and I was like, oh my God, this is going to be so hard. And like in the bus on the way to the start line, I was hearing people behind me saying, oh no, my goal is to run under two hour or like under two hours 20. And, uh, you know, my last one was two thirty, and this and that. And I'm just kind of like, I can't even imagine, can't even fathom running a two twenty marathon let alone in boston with all the uphills and downhills but i mean it was it was such a great race i didn't feel my best i think by mile six i i said to my husband i was like i don't feel fresh at all all like my legs feel terrible i thought the downhills were going to be a lot easier than they were um they ended up you know taking a toll on on my hips on my legs and uh Quite surprisingly to me, I was praying for more uphills than downhills because every time I went uphill, it would take the load off of my quads and my hips. And I felt way better than I did going downhill. And uh, I think if anybody, you know, here wants to run Boston or prepare for Boston, I think instead of focusing so much on the uphill part and how terrible the uphills are going to be, like focus more on that downhill training and, and and really get your hips and your quads conditioned to that because it it was honestly a lot tougher than than I thought it was going to be and I was you know thinking that the downhills were going to be a breeze but I think you know 
it was really unique, the race in Boston, because we started in wave one with all these incredible runners and just how many people pass you at the beginning and how many people fly out of the gate. And by like mile three or four, you see people already on the side of the road, stretching their quads and their hammies and, you know, dealing with, with different things already so early on in the race, because I just feel like Boston is so physical and in order for it to kind of, you know, continue going, you need to be physically and mentally prepared for everything that you can face on the day. And it was cold. It was pouring rain about about three different times during the race. But, you know, I just tried to enjoy it because so many people look forward to this race. So many people want to run the Boston Marathon and I had this unique opportunity. So um, I just tried to like push out the fact that I was dying, like my legs were hurting so bad and just kind of enjoy, you know, what was going on around me. And I think that's one of the unique things about marathons and, and the majors in general is that the crowd turnout and the support is amazing. Yeah, for sure. I think it was definitely uh, a big year this year, especially with Kipchoge in the field. There are a lot of people out who wanted to watch him race. Uh, you said you weren't close to getting the qualifying standard, which is 330 for your age group, but that was before you'd run, you know, 342 now. Now you're not that far away. Like, is that a goal for you to one day qualify for Boston and come back and run it? Absolutely. When, when I say I don't think I'm like close to a BQ time, it's obviously, you know, you can run a BQ and you can, you know, be in that pool to enter with your BQ time. But obviously there's people who might be faster than you and you might not necessarily run the race because there are people who ran five minutes faster than you, 10 minutes faster than you. But I, I definitely know, and that's probably the goal going into Chicago at the end of the year, is to try and run as close to 3.30 as I can. Um, I know I can do that, and that's that's kind of like the mentality um, that I'll start preparing for in, in the next month or so. Um, but, you know, it's, it's definitely something that I want to do. I'm focusing on the six stars, um, first, uh, I know there has been lots of talk about a seven star making an appearance in the near future. So I want to try and get that six star medal before there's any talk of any seven star being added, but it's definitely something that I want to repeat in the future, doing all of these marathons again, possibly doing a double marathon again, because it's just such a unique experience. And it really kind of made me appreciate what the human body does and how quickly you can recover and just mentally how tough you can be because I thought I was mentally tough when I played tennis, but this new thing that I became obsessed with the running, it just, you know, amplified everything that I thought I was already, uh, uh, that already possessed. And it's, it's really cool to be honest. Well, I I'm curious, Monica, like what, what made you, um, get into running? Like, I don't know. Like I, I used to run at a somewhat, decent level i mean not nearly as good as you, you are in tennis but now it's very hard for me to i, I don't enjoy running like i'm not in shape i could never achieve what i used to achieve <laughs> and i remember reading an article about 15 years ago in the new york times about it's common for ex-athletes like you know elite athletes and i wouldn't put myself in that category but a lot of them are totally out of shape because they're not there's no there's no goal there's no motivation so w was this something conscious on you like you realized okay i can't play tennis anymore i need to find something else to stay active or how did you find running? Yeah, I completely agree with what you what you say. And a lot of ex-professional athletes, you know, they go through that lull 
all that they've been working so hard their whole lives that they just want really, I like the concept of not doing anything. And sometimes, you know, even my rest days or even on the days that I need to do my running, I just, I just want to chill and not do anything. But I knew how important staying active was to my body. And I knew how crappy sometimes I felt on days where I wasn't moving, whether it was just like staying on the couch all day or needing to. I mean, there were times where my coaches told me like, please do not do anything because they know that I would have gone to like the shops and walked around, you know, for hours and hours. They know I would have gone to the dog park with my dogs and just started doing sprints with them. And um, I was always somebody who wanted to be very active and um, running kind of came into my life at, at a point where um, I was still playing. I was still playing tennis, but I was in my injury uh, state. So I wasn't really playing. I was always in the gym and and doing rehab for my shoulder, um, surgery after surgery. And there were always things that the doctors were telling me that I could not do. I could not lift heavy things. I could not do this. I could not swing a racket. I couldn't do so many things. And running was one of the things that they told, they cautioned me kind of against, because there's obviously the swinging of the arms and they wanted to leave my shoulder away from any kind of like giant inflammation but they're like okay if your shoulder doesn't hurt you while you run okay by all means go and run so running was one of those things that you know was a big um anxiety reliever it was a good thing when I started going stir crazy in my head about my injuries and me not being able to play and seeing a lot of my peers continuing to play and win and play at such a high level Um, it was something that I could just shut my mind off and just go for a run. I lived in Arizona while I was rehabbing my injury. So obviously it was very scenic. I would go sometimes running on a trail and you're just in the mountains and there's this incredible silence where it's just so peaceful. And, uh, my husband used to work, work, um, with Spartan and they did, um, endurance, uh, obstacle course racing. So he was very much in, you know, he, he had run marathons before. So he, he was also very active. So that's something that we kind of got into together. And, uh, you know, it started off being like three miles here and there, five miles occasionally. And we ended up running our first half marathon. Well, we did a, the, virtu- the NYC virtual half uh, during when the pandemic was still kind of at a, at, a, at a high in 2021. And then we ended up running a half marathon in Scottsdale. And I really fell in love with the whole race experience, you know, getting your bib number, then getting to the start line, seeing everybody run and, you know, um, you know, all the different levels of runners. And then once I knew that tennis was kind of over for me, um, that's when I really wanted to try and do the New York City Marathon. I had seen that other athletes had done it. Uh, Caroline Wozniacki, who is also a former tennis player, she had done it during her career. Uh, I by no means was was going to train for something like this during my tennis career because uh, it's it's very very challenging. But you know, it, it running just became something that piqued my interest. I used to hate running, like you know, you you just said. Anytime my coaches would make me run any kind of thing, any kind of distance, I would just you know roll my eyes and kind of do like, oh, I have to run. But whether it was like short sprints, agility, that was the type of running I enjoyed. I didn't really like doing the long distance. And now when I speak to some of my coaches, I still keep in touch with, they're like, so let me get this straight. Every time we asked you to do 10 minutes of running, 
you would complain and whine and roll your eyes and all this stuff. But now you're choosing to run three and a half hours for fun. That makes no sense. And it's just amazing how like things in your life can change. And it's just kind of like your attitude and your point of view towards them. And it starts changing because life just, you know, it life is, is, is that way. It's a lot of twists and turns. And yeah, now, now I guess I like running. So, but what do you do for like workouts or, or training? Like, how, how did you find out what to do? I mean, a lot. Uh, Jonathan and I, you know, we're on high school and college teams, so we kind of learned that way. Where were you getting information, and what was your training like? You know, for the first marathon, and what's it like now? And do you think it's going to keep going up and up? So, the training for the first marathon, I my husband had followed a training plan. I think that was. Um, made by Nike at one point that when he was training for one of his first marathons and it gave him, I think it was like six weeks of, um, six weeks of training. And then, uh, so we followed that, how, how long you're supposed to run, um, what you were supposed to be doing. But then, um, this time around, I partnered up with Koros, uh, which is, um, a GPS watch brand uh, kind of like Garmin and, and Polar and everything, but Koros started to launch a great training program for di- different times uh, that you for to run a 315, 330 marathon. And the great thing about that Koros plan was that it was very adaptable to my metrics and, and the times I was putting up in each different run. And it was, it basically took the stress off of myself to have to plan my runs during the week. So it would tell me exactly what I needed to do, what numbers I needed to hit. And if I didn't hit those numbers, then the plan would go adjusting itself to where my, my running level. And it was really great. And I worked with uh, de- the developers of this plan at Koros and we had um, a cool little story going that basically, you know, they were going to put out all of my metrics after Boston to show the comparison of what this plan had done from when I finished the New York City Marathon to Boston. And it was incredible just to see my base level fitness, how it increased, how my heart rate slowly decreased, because I used to have a very, very high heart rate when I when I ran and I still do. And I think that's influenced by tennis. But I brought my heart rate down a lot more and I was able to endure a lot more physical stress um, at a lower heart rate. And it also showed, you know, different paces and my splits and just looking at all of this stuff as a whole. And, and um, it really helped improve my running. Now, when it came to strength training, the first marathon, I did not really do any type of strength training. Uh, For this one, I started doing a lot more things that I used to do for tennis. Um, which is, you know, a lot of more quick twitch movements, a lot of, you know, I I wanted to build a lot of lean muscle. um, And it ended up making me faster. It ended up, you know, preventing a lot of injury uh, that you could possibly have, like, I usually end up suffering a lot on my, on my hips, my hamstrings, and it made me feel a lot better once I started strength training. And this time around, I'm going to structure more my training around, um, a half Ironman that I'm actually doing two weeks before the Chicago marathon. So, uh, we are going to end up working with, um, my husband and I are going to work with a, a certified triathlon Ironman, uh, coach 
and start learning, you know, the different things that I need to do for swimming, cycling, and obviously running. And I think it would be really cool to see just how much I can also improve from all that half Ironman training and take it into Chicago because I already know how to run a marathon. And I've proven to myself three different times that I can run a marathon and Chicago is a very flat course. But I know that with the swimming and the cycling, I have to pretty much get shredded in order to do these things well. I have to, it's a a lot of different cross training and maybe it'll be a little bit more fun instead of dedicating solely all of my time to just going out on the trail and running. Um, And I think, you know, it could help and I'm going to see, you know, how that, how that works. And if, you know, I, I improved vastly in, in Chicago in my times. And that's a great indicator for me in the marathons that are coming up that I can in, uh, incorporate a little bit more cross training instead of just needing to be solely in the gym and running. So how much did your mileage get up to? Like how, how many days a week were you running? What was the peak mileage? I think I ran every single day, um, whether it was, it was, it, it was different. I think there were three or four taper weeks that I did that the mileage wasn't, I, I don't think it was more than 20, but sometimes there was, you know, 50 mile weeks, 60 mile weeks, um, which is something that I had never done. Um, usually, you know, I would, I would like to run lower mileage um, throughout the weeks and just kind of keep it from there. So it really varied. And on the 60, 50 mile weeks, it was um, the cool thing about the plan is that on the long runs, it's structured the long runs in a way where it wouldn't really be overwhelming. So if I had to go out and let's say I would run 18 miles um, and you look and you say, oh, crap, today is an 18 mile day. It's going to be so boring. This plan structured those runs in a way that it would break up the mileage for me in a way that I would do a two mile um, warm up. Then I would do maybe six miles at uh, marathon pace. And then after that marathon pace, immediately after, I would reduce my speed to two miles at aerobic endurance, which is just very low heart rate, recover another six miles at marathon pace. So I would really push those other six miles. And then I would have a two mile recovery at the very end. So it kind of structured things in a way that I could break it up and focus on different things in my running. And those uh, different intervals made those longer runs were fun. And it actually made it in my head go by a lot quicker because instead of saying, okay, I have 18 miles to go, at least on the six mile marathon pace, I was like, okay, I've done two miles. I have four more. And it didn't make it as overwhelming as the first time I started running and I needed to do my long runs. I, it would just feel overwhelming to be like two miles in and still see you have 16 to go, for example. Yeah. What is it like for you mentally to go from a sport where you're one of the best in the world to basically starting over again and you're getting beaten by thousands of athletes in a marathon? I think it's, I don't view it that way. Uh, in tennis, I already knew where I was and I worked really hard to get to where I was. And for me, what's great about running is that you can do it at any age and it doesn't really matter. You know, I, I don't really, obviously I'm focusing on my times and obviously I want to push my times, but it just gives me a lot of hope that even when I'm, I don't know, 65 years old one day, 
I can still be doing this. I can still be running marathons because I see people who are 90 years old, 98 years old that are crossing the finish lines at some of these races. So it humbles me and it makes me really happy to see all the different types of runners. And when I'm running out there, um, the thing that I focus on a lot and it kind of takes a lot of the pain and the negativity away when you're running is that you're sharing this experience with thousands of other people. So I don't really care where I end up. Obviously, I want to try and do as well as possible. But, you know, it just it, it's incredible to see that there are 40, 50 year old women who are still running sub three marathons and they're just doing this. And for me, it's not really about a competition for the running. I'm doing it because I love it. And I don't want to go pro by any means. And I'm doing these half Ironmans as well now, just just because I enjoy being active, I enjoy being outdoors, I enjoy seeing my progression in something. And, you know, in tennis, it's very hard to see your progression when you're already very good at something, you know, the, the wins are the things that kind of tell you that, you know, you're mastering your craft. And here, I know that I'm mastering my craft just because my times start improving. And also, I'm just very happy when I'm running. You, I think in, in London, I was so, I was in so much pain by the end of the race. My legs were, were so tired and I was really tired. But I think the last three miles of the race, I ran with a smile because I was like, I love what I'm doing. I'm almost done with, I don't know, I think it was like a 56 mile week and it was two marathons in that block. And I'm like, I'm almost done with this. And I accomplished this and it made me so happy just to be able to cross the finish line at, at these two races that, you know, I, I, I don't really care if, if I never run a two hour, 20 minute marathon or whatever. I, I'm just really happy that I'm able to push myself this way and that, you know, nobody has to push me to do it. My husband says that I'm very stubborn and sometimes I get upset if I miss workouts or if I don't meet times or if I have to take a day off because I just love what I'm doing. And sometimes people have to force me to slow down because I just, once, once I start getting passionate about something, I just keep wanting to do more. And, um, that really makes me happy. You seem to be all in on the running. I'm curious, do you play tennis at all recreationally? Yes. So I am starting to get into tennis a little bit more again so I kind of, after my injuries and pretty much when the doctor sat me down and said I would never play professional tennis again, um, I needed a break because I had spent since 2019 um, so many years just in rehab, training, getting my shoulder to where supposedly it needed to be, and it never really got there. So I needed to take a break, and you know I kind of stepped away for, for a long time. Obviously, I stayed very much active in tennis because I do commentary uh, for it. But um, now, you know, I, I really do miss it and I really miss the sport. And I'm starting to get some calls to do some exhibition matches, which is awesome. So, you know, obviously that requires me to, to pick up a racket and hit some balls here and there. And um, it's good. It's good to, to, to be out on the court again. And obviously I'm nowhere... Um, I'm not going to be anywhere near the level that I used to be, but just the fact that I'm still able to pick up the racket and feel like I haven't missed a beat is pretty cool. And, um, you know, I, I, I definitely do like going to the court every so often and hitting some, um, my husband used to play as well. So, uh, we go out onto the court and hit some and, and just enjoy that. 
So before Boston, you got to meet Elliot Kipchoge. You guys were both Olympic champions in Rio in 2016. And I saw there was an article on Olympics.com. They had you quoted as saying, he is, in my opinion, the greatest athlete in the world at anything. He's like the goat of goats. So why do you believe that? I believe that for a number of reasons. Number one, what he has done in running is incredible. And I know the man who won in London nearly broke his record and could possibly be his successor. I don't think Kipchoge is done by any means. Obviously, you know, he's talked about a possible retirement in the future, but he does want to win all six of the majors. And I, and I believe that he can still do it and he's going to do it. And obviously the Olympics is something that's, you know, very important for him. But I think just what had he, what he has done historically in running, what he did in Berlin is incredible. But I feel that he is the best of all time and he is the greatest athlete of all time because of who he is as a person and his humility and just how humble this this person is i've read several articles stories about him and you know he continues to live in kenya he trains in kenya um you know he he spends you know weeks training at a camp away from his family and just the the dedication that he has to his craft the way that he speaks he just seems, I, I, I feel like he's a gentle giant. And I don't mean giant by how tall he is, but giant just because of what he represents. And he's so just serene, just so calm, so mellow. And, you know, this, this is a person who has accomplished what so many people dream of accomplishing in, in their athletic careers. His accolades are, are incredible. Um, and, you know, I would think, you know, somebody like him could live in London, could live in Switzerland, could live in Austria somewhere, you know, a little bit more lavish. But he he continues to stay true to his roots in Kenya. And you just see that he he's just a very humble person and he just goes about doing his thing and he says hello to everybody. In London, he passed out medals to some of the people who crossed the finish line. And those are just things that you just see that that I, I just feel like not a lot of athletes continue to do at, at the peak of their careers. I, I saw also after Boston, he had just lost a race that so many people had pegged him to win. And the next day he got off a, um, a bus to visit a running store and, and talk to people the way he spoke after his defeat. He's like, well, this is like a bounce check. And in order for me to get it right, I, I just have to go in and write a new one and hopefully it clears the next time, you know, I deposit the check or whatever. And it's it, it was just such a great mentality. He wasn't, you know, being immature about the fact that he lost. He was being completely open and honest of, of what happened that day. And so many people were like, oh my God, he lost. And he was like, well, okay, I, I'm, I'm human. I lost. I'm just going to go back to Kenya and I'm going to train and then I'm going to get better for the next one. And for for me, those things make up, you know, a great athlete. Obviously, the success speaks for itself, but it's away from the running. It's away from everything else. It's just what that person represents. And the and it's what's be what's between the ears, the brain, the mind that he has. Yeah. Ro Robert and I, you know, we live in this track bubble where we cover the sport. So, you know, we've, Kipchoge, we've seen Kipchoge win all these races over the years, but I'm always curious 
how well regarded these athletes are outside of our track bubble. So like before you got into running, were you aware of Kipchoge at all? No. So my husband had talked about him before. And, you know, when I was playing tennis and, and like a lot of professional athletes, I imagine we're in our own little bubble. And in tennis, we know Federer, we know Rafael Nadal, we know all these amazing athletes in this sport. But when somebody talks about amazing athletes in another sport, like basketball, for example, I mean, I know LeBron James, I know Dwayne Wade, I know some of these people, but there are other great athletes in basketball that I don't know. And the same with football, the same in uh, golf and things like that. So when I got into running, obviously it was a whole new world for me. And I started really, um, you know, knowing more of who's running and who is who. And obviously I have a lot more, you know, to go and, and, and some of these, uh, in knowing some of these incredible legends, but, um, all of a sudden I started hearing more about Eliud and his story and what he had done. And I just got so invested in just who he was as an athlete. And then I got invested as uh, who he was as a person and just kind of the things that he did, because I, I, I'm very philanthropic myself and I'm very much about giving back. I'm very much about, um, the personal side and the human side, not just what you do in your sport. And I feel like I resonated with him on a lot of levels, even though, you know, where I'm from Puerto Rico is, is maybe a little bit more well-off than places in Africa. I still, you know, I still care about giving back. I still care about connecting with my community. I'm still very much, very close to my roots. And um, just the fact that he is as well, it just, it was incredible. <clears throat> John, are we allowed to talk about tennis now? I'm Let'sRun.com's resident tennis expert. My, my first two jobs <laughs> out of college were both in tennis. My first job was at the IGA Super Thrift Tennis Classic in Oklahoma City. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was like a – I don't know if they still have it. It was Tier 3, and you had to play every, – every person had to play at least two Tier 3 events a year. It was one of the few huh. in the U.S., if the only. So it was the first tournament, I think, that Venus Williams ever won, and I oh, think wow. it was the first tournament that Serena ever played in. And they were like, she was like, I mean, Venus was kind of famous, pretty famous. And but her dad was like, I've got this other girl. She's just as good, if not better. And people were like debating that, whether that was possible. And hey, he was right. But they, I mean, they had big names. We had Anna Kornikova, Jennifer Capriotti. It, it was a really cool job for a 23-year-old. And um, Serena was like bored. She would just like hang out in the press room. And like, <laughs> she went out in the first round. She's like, can I help you? I'm like, do what? She's like, you know, like interview the players and type it up. Like it's a normal 14. Tennis is, the people are so young when you start. It's kind of crazy. Yep. Anyways, enough of my tennis story. But your gold, I mean, when we introduced you as a gold medalist, I don't think, I mean, John didn't really go off on like what happened. I mean, and this is something that, you know, running and tennis are similar in the sense of you have recreational people who can do the sport. Some of them follow the elite side of it. Some of them don't. And we're always like, you know, how do we make it more popular? Tennis has four majors. Running really only has the Olympics. But what I always complain about running as compared to like, you know, soccer or football is there's no interceptions. There's no flute goals. So running is kind of predictable. And tennis, normally the best people win, but there can be upsets. And we saw that in Rio. I mean, you're someone that was never ranked higher than 27th in the world. You, I don't think you ever made a quarterfinal of a Grand Slam. 
yet you won the Olympic gold medal. And it wasn't like, oh, sometimes in running, not all the people were there. Everybody was there. Serena was there. Venus was there. I think it was something like 50 of the top 64 women were there. Is that right? Yeah, it was, it was a stacked field. So, I mean, and, and, and I've been reading, I mean, I'm spending hours last night on YouTube and stuff. People are like, you weren't phased by it. I mean, you beat two top 10 players. You beat another woman that had, had also won a grand slam. But in uh, and, and Puerto Rico, no woman had ever won a gold medal. So it was a huge deal. Like I was reading, they were the priest was stopping mass and <laughs> looking at the phone or something. But like, what was that like? Like, I mean, I think in, in I don't know. I, I guess every tennis match you ever play, you probably think, okay, there's a chance I could win, but how are you just not blown away by the moment? Like, I don't know. When, when I play tennis, I, I sometimes would, I, the, my head would be like, okay, it's 1530. I better win the next two points. Otherwise they're going to have game point. Like it would just, the, the pressure would get to me. And I don't understand how you could just have <laughs> this one run right in the biggest moment. I mean, it was, it was so unique. Honestly, the Olympics was an experience that you know, I had always wanted to be a part of since I was very little. It didn't have to be tennis. It could be anything. But I really wanted to always participate at an Olympic Games. And when I had the opportunity to do so in Rio, I, you know, made it a point that I wanted to enjoy the whole event. Like, it wasn't about winning and losing for me. I wanted to enjoy being there because I had heard so many stories about the Olympics, the Olympic Village. Um and Puerto Rico had a small delegation. We were only about like 48 athletes compared to the United States that had hundreds, you know. And I, from the minute I got there, I connected really well with each of my teammates from Puerto Rico. Um, I still had my own coaching team with me. And uh, obviously, you know, being in tennis, I was apart from, you know, the whole crowd in, in the Olympic Village that sometimes, you know, you have six people from track and field and you have, you know, a couple swimmers and stuff like that. But tennis, I was, I was just kind of like the lone ranger over there, but um, we always made it a point to get together after, you know, our days were over, whether it was going to the food halls to eat or, you know, just hanging out in the common room with some music and just talking. And so I really enjoyed the whole experience. And that was one of the things that I think helped me throughout the whole event was that, I wasn't hyper fixated and hyper focused on the tennis and the event itself. I was able to do a really good job of disconnecting what was my job from enjoyment. And, you know, I never really put a lot of pressure on myself at this event because in no way, shape or form was I going to win. In 2016, I had my best year, my best results by far. I made a couple finals. Uh, you know, I had very consistent, um, you know, results making quarterfinals, semifinals consistently at events. Um, I don't think I went above 12 losses in the year. Like I had a really, really great year, but that by any means didn't put me in a position where like, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to win this thing. So I think that helped me a lot. It never really gave me the opportunity to get nervous before any match. I think the only matches that I was really nervous was my first round because I was making my Olympic debut and it was, it was huge for me. It meant so much. And then the semifinal was really the match where I was the most nervous because everybody, um, you know, who's in the semifinal are, are just kind of like, okay, if I 
win, I secure a medal. If I lose, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I could wake up and have a really bad cold and I could lose and go home with nothing. And that's, you know, it's, it's, it's a big shock because you work so hard to get to this point. You want to at least have something to show for it. So I, I was just enjoying the moment. And I think the first two rounds I played really well and I was playing well, I was feeling good. And then I think it was in the third round where I beat the, um, the French open champion of that year in under an hour, I was like, okay, wait a minute. I think I need to do some reevaluating on my goal here because I'm playing way too well to kind of downplay the situation. And the thing is I was going into these matches saying, I am this person's equal. I can do this. I can play. I'm not afraid of them. And that's something that throughout my whole career, I always had, I wasn't afraid to step onto the court against, I never got to play her, but I would have loved to is, you know, I wouldn't have ever been afraid to step on the court against Serena. I'm never afraid to step onto the court against anybody because at the end of the day, they are a woman. They're a human being. They have a racket. They have their two shoes. They have their dress or their skirt and their top or whatever. And we are here to hit a tennis ball back and forth on the court. And whoever does it better wins the match. So that was kind of like my thing. And, and every match that just kind of amplified itself. And I'm like, I'm just here to do my job. I'm, I'm here to have fun and I'm here to enjoy. And that was also my mentality going into the final. I was so, I was so relaxed the day of the final. I, you know, walked around with my agent around the Olympic village because he had flown in from Florida because we knew there was going to be a lot of press the day after the final and he needed to manage all of that. I was like, hey, come, come. We're going to go. I'm going to go and show you this. This is the gym. This is the dining hall. And we're just walking around. And he's like, what are you doing? Are you not like nervous? Like, why are you so relaxed right now? I was like, "Eh, I'm I'm in the Olympic Village. I'm having a good time. Uh, I have to leave in an hour to the courts. I'll, I'll, I'll focus on what I have to do in an hour. And it was like, it was just so natural for me. Um, And then... You know, the only thing I told myself before the final, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be in this position ever again. I don't know if I'm ever going to play in another Olympics ever again. And it's kind of amazing that I have that mentality because I I never will or, or never could. Um, that I just was like, go out onto the court and enjoy yourself. I was like, this match is going to be over in the blink of an eye. And I want to enjoy every moment that I'm here on the court. And that kind of helped uh, helped me deal with the emotions because I won the first set and I went through hell in the second set. Cause I was just focusing on, on the result and winning and the gold medal. And it's right there. It's, it's within my grasp. And I had such a crappy time in that second set that in the third set, I was like, I bet that didn't feel good. Right. Like, you know, I'm talking to myself. I was like, that felt like crap, right? You, you didn't enjoy yourself at all. And I was like, you have half an hour to get your act together and start enjoying yourself because it's, it's going to be over very fast. And, um, you know, I kind of went in autopilot. I started singing like a song in my head. I don't really remember what the third set, like what happened. All I know is that like I came to at five zero and all of a sudden I was starting to question my own ability. I was like, where was I for the past 15 minutes? Do I even know how to play tennis still? What the heck am I doing? And it was just, it was, 
really unique moment because I just wasn't there. I was just having fun. I was just kind of doing what, what, you know, what I know how to do best. And then by some miracle, I was able to close out that third set and win. But that week was really an example for me of, of just how well you can do when you just put the results to a side and you just enjoy and you're just present and you're just having fun with everything. And, um, yeah, that was, it was, it was such an amazing week and, and, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really know where it came from, but you know, I'm really glad that it, that it happened at the best time. Yeah. Those, those big upsets like and running don't happen as much. I mean, sometimes you see it in the Olympic marathon, someone you don't know kind of wins because there's a limit, but it's also, it helps in the Olympics because it's a limited field. The best Kenyans and Ethiopians can all enter. Like, do you have any ideas to how to make track and field more popular? Um, I mean, I, I guess in the next, right. John, when did Jasmine Camacho Quinn win the gold medal? So she won for Puerto Rico, right? Tokyo. Yeah. She won in, in Tokyo. So we've got another one, but like, I don't know. I've been around, you know, following the sport track and field for 20 years. People, how do you make it popular? I'm like, look, if there was some way to make this popular, you know, we tried the team thing and tennis tries team tennis. I'm like, there's not some simple way to make this sport super popular. To me, the beauty of the Olympics, it's such a big deal for track. That's kind of like, okay, we can be one of the biggest sports in the Olympics. I'm fine with that, but maybe I'm just have a defeatist attitude. Do you have any ideas? Like, you know, if you were the commissioner of uh, world <laughs> athletics, what would you do? I, I have no idea. I mean, I, I definitely agree with what you, what you're saying on, on making things more team oriented. I feel like individual sports are so hard in that sense that it's just kind of like, it's just you and, and nothing else. I feel like when people do relays and track, it just seems more fun because it's like you and four other people in this team, just kind of like pushing each other. And, and when you push each other, you're, it's that sense of community and tennis. When I've played world team tennis, it's so much more fun because while I'm playing the single side, I look over to my bench and I had, you know, the Brian brothers who were on my team. I had Sam Corey, who was the, the, the man on our, that, that played singles for us. And we had two other girls who were like alternates, um, you know, in our, in our team and, or who played doubles, but it was so much more fun because you saw that you had a team and that team was cheering you on. And all of a sudden, you know, in between, like you make a really great point and they run out onto the court and give you high fives. And then they run back to the bench and things like that. I think more team sports are, or more team events in, involved in individual sports will make things more interesting and more fun. That's why I said, you know, if, if I ever have um, kids, I would want them to play a team sport first because it's just it's just more fun it's more social you make more friends and in tennis that 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 was very hard to do because obviously it's so competitive and you're always trying to better the person who's ahead of you or or just continue to stay in front of whoever's behind you and that competitive that competitive aspect sometimes takes the fun out of you know individual sports all right robert you got any last questions for Monica before we let her go here? It's been very generous with her time. No, I'm good. I could keep going for hours about, <laughs> about so much. I don't know about tennis. Like, you know, I, everyone has a shoe. Like 
Is the shoe sponsor, real quick, just for the financial question, did mm-hmm. your shoe sponsors and stuff, I mean, people talk about $3 million in prize money. That sounds like a lot, but you've got to pay a coach. And yeah. I, uh, that's, that's very unique in tennis, obviously. Like what, what a lot of people don't, you know, notice is that, and, and, and in tennis, the prize money is, is a little bit different. So you can end up making more money as a tennis player from your endorsement deals than you do from your prize money. Because obviously when people see like a $4 million tournament, it doesn't mean that the winner is going to get $4 million. It means that the total purse of the prize money in that tournament is 4 million. And that's distributed among the players in different amounts, um, depending on how well you do. But also it's, you know, you have the sponsors, you have all of these things that, that obviously give you more income, but in tennis, you are the person who pays your team. You pay for your coach, you pay for your fitness coach, your physio and or chiropractor. I travel with the chiropractor. You're in charge of their flights, their hotels, their expenses, their food, everything. It, it all comes down to the player. So a lot of the time when we win this money, it's not that we're like, oh, okay, I'm going to go and buy whatever I want because I just got a million dollars today. No, it's, you know, okay. I need to pay all the people that are working with me. And then also it's managing your money well, because we've seen a lot of professional athletes that, you know, get a lot of money. And all of a sudden, a couple of years later, they end up having nothing. And that's pretty much due to the fact that either they don't have somebody who's, you know, protecting their interests with their money, which thankfully my mom, we call her the momager. She was like my mom slash manager. She helped me manage my finances in a way that, you know, I made my money work for me. And, and thankfully, you know, now that I'm in my retirement stage, um, I, I, I can live a very comfortable life because I, I was very wise with my expenses and nobody really ever took advantage of my expenses, which was huge. But in tennis and in sport, it's very common that you see people abuse their, their money and their income. And all of a sudden they're left with nothing when they're done. But, you know, in tennis and individual sports, it's kind of like that you, you're, you make money, but then you also have to invest it in your career, invest it in your coaches, invest it in your, in your staff that works with you. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very tough. It's very, very challenging. And that's one of the really hard things about tennis, but at the end of the day, your team is also your family. So, um, that's, that was one thing that was very important when I went about selecting my coaches and the team that worked with me, I wanted to make sure that, not only were they good at their jobs and what they did on the tennis court, but I wanted to be with people who I could enjoy a great dinner with that when I was on a flight, I could, you know, share my music or watch a movie with, or, you know, at the end of a very long day, pop a bottle of wine and have a glass of wine and just talk about new shows or, or something like that. And I was very thankful that throughout the course of my career, I had really great people who I worked with and, and got to know, on a much deeper level than just the professional. And I'm still really close with a lot of these people today. But in terms of the, of the sponsorship, I mean, a lot of, in running, pe- people have their shoe sponsor and that's almost not 100% of their endorsement lo- money. And there's a little bit of prize money, but people have been saying, oh, can I get a second and third sponsor? What percent of your sponsorship in tennis is from your main, you know, you said new balance at the end of the career. Do you have other sponsors too? And, and what percent is the shoe and, So a lot of the time, whether it's a company, so we would have full clothing deals. So I worked with Adidas at the very beginning of my career. Uh, I went with LS, uh, which is a Japanese slash British um, clothing brand. 
Um, and then I had New Balance and also Yonex, um, which each deal was structured differently. Adidas was head to toe um, in their clothing. And then I would have my racket deal, which was with Babylon. Um, and then uh, when I was with LS, it was mainly my clothing because they didn't make tennis shoes. So uh, my tennis shoes, I was sponsored by ASICs. Um, and then when I went to, I switched rackets and I was with Yonex. Yonex made tennis rackets and then also made clothing. So I was head to toe in Yonex clothing and shoes and the rackets. And then I ended up changing back to Babolat at the very end of my career. And then uh, New Balance was head to toe as well. And now I'm working with Athleta, which is, um, you know, a, a very very good athleisure brand that's starting to get into tennis as well and, and starting to get into a lot of different sports. So I am head to toe in their uh, clothing. However, shoes, I use whatever works best for me. And in this case, I'm still using New Balance shoes. So it's it's very different. And usually in tennis, what you want to structure it is that you are head to toe, including shoes in one brand. Um, but it's also very different because you want and, and our feet are just like runners are, you know, 90% of what we really need because we're on our feet all the time. So we can't have, you know, giant blisters or we can't have an unstable shoe that we twist our ankles in and we're on our feet for a very long time. So we want to have that comfort. So that's a lot of that is going into the thought process that we have before we select a sponsor. Obviously, whoever comes with the best deal is is usually what we're going to go with. But you know, there are factors later on that when you do sign with a company, you're like, okay, this doesn't work for me. So I need you to help me come up with a product that will help me feel my best on court. Well, thank you for the insights, the pro tennis world. It's interesting to hear how that compares to sort of running stuff. Cause I think it's similar in some ways and that being an individual sport, uh, I think the biggest difference probably most pro runners if you're part of a team you know you could if you're part of a training group that'll cover the, the coach your shoe sponsor will cover the cost of the coaching and that one you know it seems like it's coming out of pocket for you so mm -hmm. that's one of the the differences there but monica we thank you so much for joining us on the show uh awesome to hear your uh results in boston and london this spring and you know best of luck in chicago this fall best of luck with the half iron man and yeah thank you so much for joining us Thank you guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me.